This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Hawks of Outremer by Robert E. Howard. It's read by Connor Kay. It runs one hour, five minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Hawks of Outremer by Robert E. Howard. Originally published in Oriental Tales, Spring, 1931. The still, white, creeping road slips on, marked by the bones of man and beast, what comeliness and might have gone to pad the highway of the east. Long dynasties of fallen rows, the glories of a thousand wars, a million lovers' hearts compose the dust upon the road to Fars. Vansittart. Chapter 1. A Man Returns. Halt! The bearded man-at-arms swung his pike about, growling like a surly mastiff. It paid to be wary on the road to Antioch. The stars blinked redly through the thick night, and their light was not sufficient for the fellow to make out what sort of man it was who loomed so gigantically before him. An ironclad hand, shot out suddenly and closed on the soldier's mailed shoulder in a grasp that numbed his whole arm. From beneath the helmet, the guardsman saw the blaze of ferocious blue eyes that seemed lambent even in the dark. Saints preserve us, gasped the frightened man-at-arms. Cormac Fitzgeoffrey, avant, back to hell with ye, like a good knight. I swear to you, sir. Swear me no oaths, growled the knight. What is this talk? Are you not an incorporeal spirit? mouthed the soldier. Were you not slain by the Moorish corsairs on your homeward voyage? By the accursed gods, snarled Fitzgeoffrey. Does this hand feel like smoke? He sank his mailed fingers into the soldier's arm and grinned bleakly at the resultant howl. Enough of such mummery. Tell me who is within that tavern. Only my master, Sir Rufert de Vale of Rouen. Good enough, grunted the other. He is one of the few men I count friends in the east or elsewhere. The big warrior strode to the tavern door and entered, treading lightly as a cat despite his heavy armour. The man-at-arms rubbed his arm and stared after him curiously, noting in the dim light that Fitzgeoffrey bore a shield with the horrific emblem of his family, a white grinning skull. The guardsman knew him of old, a turbulent character, a savage fighter, and the only man among the crusaders who had been esteemed stronger than Richard the Lionhearted. But Fitzgeoffrey had taken ship for his native isle even before Richard had departed from the Holy Land. The Third Crusade had ended in failure and disgrace. Most of the Frankish knights had followed their kings homeward. What was this grim Irish killer doing on the road to Antioch? Sir Rupert de Vale, once of Rouen, now a lord of the fast-fading Outremer, turned as the great form bulked in the doorway. Cormac Fitzgeoffrey was a fraction of an inch above six feet, but with his mighty shoulders and 200 pounds of iron muscle, he seemed shorter. The Norman stared in surprised recognition and sprang to his feet. His fine face shone with sincere pleasure. Cormac, by the saints. Why, man, we heard that you were dead. Cormac returned the hearty grip, while his thin lips curved slightly in what would have been, in another man, a broad grin of greeting. Sir Rupert was a tall man and well-knit, but he seemed almost slight behind the huge Irish warrior who combined bulk with a sort of dynamic aggressiveness that was apparent in his every movement. 
Fitzgeoffrey was clean-shaven, and the various scars that showed on his dark, grim face lent his already formidable features a truly sinister aspect. When he took off his plain, visorless helmet and thrust back his male coif, his square-cut black hair that topped his low, broad forehead contrasted strongly with his cold blue eyes. A true son of the most indomitable and savage race that ever trod the blood-stained fields of battle, Cormac Fitzgeoffrey looked to be what he was, a ruthless fighter, born to the game of war, to whom the ways of violence and bloodshed were as natural as the ways of peace are to the average man. Son of a woman of the O'Briens and a renegade Norman knight, Geoffrey the Bastard, in whose veins it is said coursed the blood of William the Conqueror, Cormac had seldom known an hour of peace or ease in all his thirty years of violent life. He was born in a few torn and blood-drenched land, raised in a heritage of hate and savagery. The ancient culture of Erin had long crumbled before the repeated onslaughts of Norsemen and Danes. Harried on all sides by the cruel foes, the rising civilization of the Celts had faded before the fierce necessity of incessant conflict, and the merciless struggle for survival had made the Gaels as savage as the heathens who assaulted them. Now, in Cormac's time, War upon Red War swept the Crimson Isle, where clan fought clan, and the Norman adventurers tore at one another's throats, or resisted the attacks of the Irish, playing tribe against tribe, while from Norway and the Orkneys, the still half-pagan Vikings, ravaged all impartially. A vague realisation of all this flashed through Sir Rupert's mind, as he stood, staring at his friend. We heard you were slain, in a sea fight of Sicily, he repeated. Cormac shrugged his shoulders. Many died then, it is true, and I was struck senseless by a stone from a ballista. Doubtless that is how the rumour started, but you see me as much alive as ever. Sit down, old friend. Sir Rupert thrust forward one of the rude benches which formed part of the tavern's furniture. What is forward in the west? Cormac took the wine goblet proffered him by a dark-skinned servitor and drank deeply. Little of note, he said. In France, the king counts his pence and squabbles with his nobles. Richard, if he lives, languishes somewhere in Germany, tis thought. In England, Shane, that is to say, John, oppresses the people and betrays the barons. And in Ireland, hell. He laughed shortly and without mirth. What shall I say of Ireland but the same old tale? Gale and foreigner cut each other's throats and plot together against the king. John de Courcy since Hugh de Lacy supplanted him as governor, has raged like a madman, burning and pillaging, while Donald O'Brien lurks in the west to destroy what remains. Yet, by Satan, I think this land is but little better. Yet there is a peace of sort now, murmured Sir Robert. Aye, peace while the jackal Saladin gathers his powers, grunted Cormac. Think you he will rest idle while Acre, Antioch, and Tripoli remain in Christian hands? He but waits an excuse to seize the remnants of Outremer. Sir Robert shook his head, his eyes shadowed. It is a naked land, and a bloody one. Were it not akin to blasphemy, I could curse the day I followed my king eastward. Betimes I dream of the orchards of Normandy, the cool deep forests and the dreaming vineyards. Methinks my happiest hours were when a page of twelve years. At twelve, grunted Fitzgeoffrey. I was running wild, with shockhead kerns on the naked fens. I wore wolfskins, weighed near fourteen stone, and had killed three men. Sir Rupert looked curiously at his friend. 
separated from Cormac's native land by a width of sea and the breadth of Britain, the Norman knew but little of the affairs in that far isle. But he knew vaguely that Cormac's life had not been an easy one. Hated by the Irish and despised by the Normans, he had paid back contempt and ill-treatment with savage hate and ruthless vengeance. It was known that he owned a shadow of allegiance only to the great house of Fitzgerald, who, as much Welsh as Norman, had even then begun to take up Irish customs and Irish quarrels. You wear another sword than that you wore when I saw you last. They break in my hands, said Cormac. Three Turkish sabres went into the forging of the sword I wielded at Joppa, yet it shattered like glass in the sea fight off Sicily. I took this from the body of a Norse sea king who led a raid into Munster. It was forged in Norway. See the pagan runes on the steel? He drew the sword, and the great blade shimmered bluely, like a thing alive in the candlelight. The servants crossed themselves, and Sir Rupert shook his head. You should not have drawn it here. They say blood follows such a sword. Bloodshed follows my trail, anyway, growled Cormac. This blade is already drunk Fitzgeoffrey blood. With this, that Norse king slew my brother, Shane. And you wear such a sword? exclaimed Sir Rupert in horror. No good will come of that evil blade, Cormac. Why not? asked the big warrior impatiently. It's a good blade. I wiped out the stain of my brother's blood when I slew his slayer. By Satan, that sea king was a grand sight in his coat of mail with silvered scales. His silvered helmet was strong too. Axe, helmet, and skull shattered together. You had another brother, did you not? Aye, Donal. Erched O'Donnell ate his heart out after the battle at Kulmanach. There was a feud between us at the time, so it may be that Erched merely saved me the trouble. But for all that, I burned the O'Donnell in his own castle. How came you to first ride on the crusade? Asked Sir Rupert curiously. Were you stirred with a desire to cleanse your soul by smiting the Paynim? Ireland was too hot for me, answered the Norman Gale candidly. Lord Seamus MacGeralt wished to make peace with the English king, and I feared he would buy favour by delivering me into the hands of the king's governor. As there was a feud between my family and most of the Irish clans, there was nowhere for me to go. I was about to seek my fortune in Scotland when the young Eamon Fitzgerald was stung by the Hornet of Crusade and I accompanied him. But you gained favour with Richard. Tell me the tale. Soon told. It was on the plains of Azotus when we came to grips with the Turks. I, you were there. I was fighting alone in the thick of the fray and helmets and turbans were cracking like eggs all around when I noted a strong knight in the forefront of our battle. He cut deeper and deeper into the close-ranked lines of the heathen, and his heavy mace scattered brains like water. But so dented with his shield, and so stained with blood his armour, I could not tell who he might be. But suddenly, his horse went down, and in an instant, he was hemmed in on all sides by the howling fiends who bore him down by sheer weight of numbers. So, hacking away to his side, I dismounted. Dismounted? exclaimed Sir Rupert in amazement. Cormac's head jerked up in irritation at the interruption. Why not? He snapped. I'm no French she-knight to fear wading into the muck. Anyway, I fight better on foot. Well, I cleared a space with a sweep or two of my sword, and the fallen knight, the press being lightened, came up roaring like a bull, and swinging his blood-clotted mace with such fury, he nearly brained me as well as the Turks. A charge of English knights swept the heathen away, and when he lifted his visor, I saw I had succored Richard of England. Who are you, and who is your master? he asked. 
I am Cormac Fitzgeoffrey, and I have no master, said I. I followed young Eamon Fitzgerald to the Holy Land, and since he fell before the walls of Acre, I seek my fortune alone. What think ye of me as a master, he asked, while the battle raged half a bowshot about us. You fight reasonably well for a man with Saxon blood in his veins, I answered, but I owe allegiance to no English king. He swore like a trooper, by the bones of saints, he said. That had cost another man his head. You saved my life, but for this insolence no prince shall knight you. Keep your knighthoods, and be damned, said I. I am a chief in Ireland, but we waste words. Yonder are pagan heads to be smashed. Later, he bade me to his royal presence and waxed merry with me. A rare drinker is he, though a fool withal. But I distrust kings. I attached myself to the train of a brave and gallant young knight of France, the Sieur Gerard de Gisclin, full of insane ideas of chivalry, but a noble youth. When peace was made between the hosts, I heard hint of a renewal of strife between the Fitzgerald and the Lee Bottelliers, and Lord Seamus having been slain by Niall MacArt, and I being in favour with the king anyway, I took a leave of Sieur Gerard and betook myself back to Erin. Well, we swept Ormond with torch and sword, and hanged old Sir William Le Bottelier to its own barbican. Then, the Geraldines having no particular need of my sword at the moment, I bethought myself once more of Sieur Gerard to whom I owed my life, and which debt I have not yet had the opportunity to pay. How, Sir Rupert, dwells he still in his castle of Eli Elia? Sir Rupert's face went suddenly white, and he leaned back as if shrinking from something. Cormac's head jerked up, and his dark face grew more forbidding and fraught with somber potentialities. He seized the Norman's arm in an unconsciously savage grip. Speak, man, he rasped. What ails you? Sir Gerard, half-whispered Sir Rupert. Have you not heard? Ali Eliar lies in smouldering ruins, and Gerard is dead. Cormac snarled like a mad dog. His terrible eyes blazed with a fearful light. He shook Sir Rupert in the intensity of his passion. Who did the deed? He shall die, were he emperor of Byzantium. I know not, Sir Rupert gasped, his mind half-stunned by the blast of the gale's primitive fury. There be foul rumours. Sir Gerard loved a girl in the Sheikh's harem, it is said. A horde of wild riders from the desert assailed his castle, and a rider broke through to ask aid of the Baron Conrad von Gonlang. But Conrad refused. I snarled Cormac with a savage gesture. He hated Gerard, because long ago the youngster had the best of him at swordplay on the shipboard before old Frederick Barbarossa's eyes. And what then? Eli Elia fell with all its people. Their stripped and mutilated bodies lay among the coals, but no sign was found of Gerard. Whether he died before or after the attack on the castle is not known, but dead he must be, since no demand for ransom has been made. Thus Saladin keeps the peace. Sir Rupert, who knew Cormac's unreasoning hatred for the great Kurdish sultan, shook his head. This was no work of his. There is incessant bickering among the border, Christian as much at fault as Muslim. It could not be otherwise with Frankish barons holding castles in the very heart of Mohammedan country. There are many private feuds, and there are wild desert and mountain tribes who owe no lordship even to Saladin, and wage their own wars. Many suppose that the sheikh Nureddin el-Gore destroyed Ali el-Yar and put Sieur Gerard to death. Cormac caught up his helmet. Wait, exclaimed Sir Rupert, rising. What would you do? Cormac laughed savagely. What would I do? I have eaten the bread of the de Gisclins. Am I a jackal to sneak home and leave my patron to the kites? 
out on it. But wait, Sir Rupert urged. What will your life be worth if you ride on Nuradin's trail alone? I will return to Antioch and gather my retainers. We will avenge your friend together. Nuradin is a half-independent chief, and I am a masterless wanderer, rumbled the Norman Gale. But you are Seneschal of Antioch. If you were to ride on the border with your men-at-arms, the swine Saladin would take advantage to break the truce and sweep the remnants of the Christian kingdoms into the sea. They are but weak shells as it is, shadows of the glories of Baldwin and Beaumont. No, the Fitzgeoffreys wreak their own vengeance. I ride alone. He jammed his helmet into place, and with a gruff, farewell, he turned and strode into the night, roaring for his horse. A trembling servant brought the great black stallion, which reared and snorted with a flash of wicked teeth. Cormac seized the reins and savagely jerked down the rearing steed, swinging into the saddle before the pouring front hoofs touched the earth. Hate and the glutting of vengeance, he yelled savagely as the great stallion whirled away, and Sir Rupert, staring bewilderedly after him, heard the swift receding clash of the brazen-shod hooves. Cormac Fitzgeoffrey was riding east. Chapter 2. The Cast of an Axe White dawn surged out of the Orient to break in rose-red billows on the hills of Outremer. The rich tints, softening the rugged outlines, deepened the blue wastes of the sleeping desert. The castle of the Baron Conrad von Gondler frowned out over a wild and savage waste. Once a stronghold of the Seljuk Turks, its metamorphosis into the manner of a Frankish lord had abated none of the eastern menace of its appearance. The walls had been strengthened and a barbican built in place of the usual wide gates, otherwise the keep had not been altered. Now in the dawn, a grim, dark figure rode up to the deep waterless moat which encircled the stronghold and smote with iron-clad fist on hollow-ringing shield until the echoes reverberated among the hills. A sleepy man-at-arms thrust his head and his pike over the wall above the barbican and bellowed a challenge. The lone rider drew back his helmeted head, disclosing a dark face with a passion that an all-night ride had not cooled in the least. You keep rare watch here roared Cormac Fitzgeoffrey. Is it because you're so hand in glove with the Paynim that you fear no attack? Where is that ale-guzzling swine you call your liege? The Baron is at wine, the fellow answered sullenly in broken English. So early? marveled Cormac. Nay, the other gave a surly grin. He has feasted all night. Wine-biber, glutton, raged Cormac. Tell him I have business with him. And what shall I say your business is, Lord Fitzgeoffrey? asked the Carl, impressed. Tell him I bring him a passport to hell, yelled Cormac, gnashing his teeth, and the scared soldier vanished like a puppet on a string. The Norman Gale sat his horse impatiently, shield slung on his shoulders, lance in its stirrup socket, and to his surprise, suddenly the Barbican door swung wide, and out of it strutted a fantastic figure. Baron Conrad von Gondler was short and fat, broad of shoulder and portly of belly, though still a young man. His long arms and wide shoulders had gained him a reputation as a deadly broadsword man, but just now he looked little of the fighter. Germany and Austria sent many noble knights to the Holy Land. Baron von Gondler was not one of them. His only arm was a gold-chased dagger in a richly brocaded sheath. He wore no armour, and his costume, flaming with gay silk and heavy with gold, was a bizarre mingling of European gourds and oriental finery. In one hand, 
On each finger of which sparkled a great jewel, he held a golden wine goblet. A band of drunken revelers reeled out behind him. Minnesingers, dwarfs, dancing girls, wine companions, vacuous-faced, blinking like owls in the daylight. All the boot kisses and hangers-on that swarm after a rich and degenerate lord trooped with their master. Scum of both races. The luxury of the East had worked quick ruin on Baron von Gondler. Well, shouted the Baron, who is it who wishes to interrupt my drinking? Any but a drunkard would know Cormac Fitzgeoffrey, snarled the horseman. His lip writhed back from his strong teeth in contempt. We have an account to settle. That name and Cormac's tone had been enough to sober any drunken knight of the Outremer. But von Gondler was not only drunk, he was a degenerate fool. The Baron took a long drink while his drunken crew stared curiously at the savage figure on the other side of the dry moat, whispering to one another. Once you were a man, von Gondler, said Cormac, in a tone of concentrated venom. Now you've become a groveling debauchee. Well, that's your own affair. The matter I have in mind is another. Why did you refuse aid to Sieur de Gisclin? The German's puffy, arrogant face took on a new hauteur. He pursed his thick lips haughtily, while his bleary eyes blinked over his bulbous nose like an owl. He was an image of pompous stupidity that made Cormac grind his teeth. What was the Frenchman to me? The Baron retorted brutally. It was his own fault. Out of a thousand girls he might have taken, the young fool tried to steal one as Sheikh wanted himself. He, the purity of honor. Bah! He added a coarse jest, and the creatures with him screamed with mirth, leaping and flinging themselves into obscene postures. Cormac's sudden and lion-like roar of fury gave them pause. Conrad von Gondler, thundered the mad gale. I name you liar, traitor, and coward, dastard, poltroon, and villain. Arm yourself and ride out here on the plain. In haste, I cannot waste much time on you. I must kill you quick and ride on lest another vermin escape me. The Baron laughed cynically. Why should I fight you? You are not even a knight. You wear no knightly emblem on your shield. Evasions of a coward, raged Fitzgeoffrey. I am a chief in Ireland. I have cleft the skulls of men whose boots you are not worthy to touch. Will you arm yourself and ride out, or are you become the swinish coward I deem you? Von Gondler laughed in scornful anger. I need not risk my hide fighting you. I will not fight you, but I will have my men-at-arms fill your hide with crossbow bolts if you tarry longer. Von Gondler. Cormac's voice was deep and terrible in its brooding menace. Will you fight? or die in cold blood. The German burst into a sudden brainless shout of laughter. Listen to him, he roared. He threatens me. He on the other side of the moat, with the drawbridge lifted, I here in the midst of my henchmen. He smote his fat thigh and roared with his fool's laughter, while the debased men and women who served his pleasures laughed with him and insulted the grim Irish warrior with shrill anathema and indecent gestures. And suddenly Cormac, with a bitter curse, rose in his stirrups, snatched his battle-axe from his saddle-bow, and hurled it with all his mighty strength. The men-at-arms on the towers cried out, and the dancing girls screamed. Von Gondler had thought himself to be out of reach, but there is no such thing as being out of reach of Norman Irish vengeance. The heavy axe hissed as it clove the air and dashed out Baron Conrad's brains. The fat, gross body buckled to the earth like a mass of melted tallow, one fat, white hand still gripping the empty wine goblet. The gay silks and cloth of gold were dabbled with a deeper red than ever was sold in the bazaars, and the jesters and dancers scattered like birds, 
screaming at the sight of that blasted head and the crimson ruin that had been a human face. Cormac Fitzgeoffrey made a fierce triumphant gesture and voiced a deep-chested yell of such ferocious exultation that men blenched to hear. Then, wheeling his black steed suddenly, he raced away before the day's soldiers could get their wits together and send a shower of arrows after him. He did not gallop far. The great steed was weary from a hard night's travel. Cormac soon swung in behind a jutting crag and reined his horse up a steep incline, halted and looked back at the way he had come. He was out of sight of the keep, but he heard no sounds of pursuit. A wait of some half hour convinced him that no attempt had been made to follow him. It was dangerous and foolhardy to ride out of a safe castle into these hills. Cormac might well have been one of an ambushing force. At any rate, whatever his enemy's thoughts were on the subject, it was evident that he need expect no present attempt at retaliation, and he grunted with angry satisfaction. He never shunned a fight, but just now he had other business on hand. Cormac rode eastward. Chapter 3. The Road to El Gore The way to El Gore was rough indeed. Cormac wound his way between huge jagged boulders across deep ravines and up treacherous steeps. The sun slowly circled towards the zenith, and the heat waves began to dance and shimmer. The sun beat fiercely on Cormac's helmed head, and glancing back from the bare rocks dazzled his narrow eyes. But the big warrior gave no heed. In his own land, he learned to defy sleet and snow and bitter cold, following the standard of the Cure de Lyon. Before the shimmering walls of Acre on the dusty plains of Azotus, and before Joppa, he had become inured to the blaze of the oriental sun, to the glare of naked sands, to the slashing dust winds. At noon, he halted long enough to allow the black stallion an hour's rest in the shade of a giant boulder. A tiny spring bubbled there, known to him of old, and it slaked the thirst of the man and the horse. The stallion cropped eagerly at the scrawny fringe of grass about the spring, and Cormac ate of the dried meats he carried in a small pouch. Here he had watered his steed in the old days, when he rode with Gerard. Elie Eliar lay to the west. In the night he had swung around it in a wide circle as he rode to the castle of Von Gonla. He had no wish to gaze on the mouldering ruins. The nearest Muslim chief of any importance was Mureddin el-Gur, who, with his brother-at-arms, Khosrow Malik, the Seljuk, held the castle of el-Gur in the hills to the east. Cormac rode stolidly through the savage heat. As mid-afternoon neared, he rode up out of a deep, wide defile and came onto the higher level of the hills. Up this defile, he had ridden aforetime to raid the wild tribes to the east, and on the small plateaus at the head of the defile stood a gibbet where Sieur Gerard de Gisclin had once hanged a red-handed Turkoman chief as a warning to those tribes. Now, as Fitzgeoffrey rode up on the plateau, he saw the old tree again bore fruit. His keen eyes made out a human form suspended in mid-air, apparently by the wrists. A tall warrior in the peaked helmet and light mail shirt of a Muslim stood beneath, tentatively prodding at the victim with a spear, making the body sway and spin on the rope. A bay Turkoman horse stood nearby. Cormac's cold eyes narrowed, the man on the rope, his naked body glistening too white in the sun for a Turk. The Norman gale touched spurs to the black stallion and swept across the plateau at a headlong run. At the sudden thunder of hoofs, the Mohammedan started and whirled. Dropping the spear with which he had been tormenting the captive, he mounted swiftly, stringing a short heavy bow as he did so. 
This done, and his left forearm thrust through the straps of a small round buckler, he trotted out to meet the onset of the Frank. Cormac was approaching at a thundering charge, eyes glaring over the edge of his grim shield. He knew that this Turk would never meet him as a Frankish knight would have met him, breast to breast. The Muslim would avoid his ponderous rushes, and circling him on his nimbler steed, drive in shaft after shaft until one found its mark. But he rushed on as recklessly as if he had never before encountered Saracen tactics. Now the Turk bent his bow, and the arrow glanced from Cormac's shield. They were barely within a javelin's cast of each other, but even as the Muslim laid another shaft to his string, doom smote him. Cormac, without checking his headlong gait, suddenly rose in his stirrups, and gripping his long lance in the middle, cast it like a javelin. The unexpectedness of the move caught the Seljuk off guard, and he made the mistake of throwing up his shield instead of dodging. The lance head tore through the light buckler and crashed full into his mail-clad breast. The point bent on his halberd without piercing the links, but the terrific impact dashed the Turk from his saddle, and as he rose, dazed and groping for his scimitar, the great black stallion was already looming horrific over him, and under those frenzied hoofs he went down, torn and shattered. Without a second glance at his victim, Cormac rode under the gibbet, and rising in his saddle, stared into the face of he who swung therefrom. By Satan, muttered the big warrior, tis Michael de Blois one of Gerard's squires. What devil's work is this? Drawing his sword, he cut the rope and the youth slid into his arms. Young Michael's lips were parched and swollen, his eyes dull with suffering. He was naked except for short leathern breeks, and the sun had dealt cruelly with his fair skin. Blood from a slight scalp wound caked his yellow hair, and there were shallow cuts on his limbs, marks left by his tormentor's spear. Cormac laid the young Frenchman in the shade cast by the motionless stallion and trickled water through the parched lips from his canteen. As soon as he could speak, Michael croaked, Now I know in truth that I am dead, for there is but one knight ever rode in Outremer who cast a long lance like a javelin, and Cormac Fitzgeoffrey has been dead for many months. But if I be dead, where is Gerard and Mulela? Rest and be at ease, growled Cormac. You live and so do I. He loosed the cords that had cut deep into the flesh of Michael's wrists and set himself to gently rub and massage the numb arms. Slowly the delirium faded from the youth's eyes. Like Cormac, he too came from a race that was tough as spring steel. An hour's rest and plenty of water and his intense vitality asserted itself. How long have you been hung from the gibbet? asked Cormac. Since dawn, Michael's eyes were grim as he rubbed his lacerated wrists. Muradin and Khosru Malik said that since Sieur Gerard once hanged one of their race here, it was fitting that one of Gerard's men should grace this gibbet. Tell me how Gerard died, growled the Irish warrior. Men hint at foul tales. Michael's fine eyes filled with tears. Ah, Cormac, I who loved him, brought about his death. Listen, there is more to this than meets the eye. I think that Muradin and his comrade-at-arms have been stung by the hornet of empire, it is in my mind that they, with various dog knights among the Franks, dream of a mongrel kingdom among these hills, which shall hold allegiance neither to Saladin nor any king of the West. They begin to broaden their holdings by treachery. The nearest Christian hold was that of Elie Eliar, of course. Sieur Gerard was a true knight, peace be upon his fair soul, and he must be removed. All this I learned later. Would to God I had known it beforehand. Among Nuruddin's slaves is a Persian girl named Yulela, 
and with this innocent tool of their evil wishes, the twain sought to ensnare my lord, to slay at once his body and his good name. And God help me, through me they succeeded where otherwise they had failed. For my lord Gerard was honourable beyond all men, when, in peace, and at Nuredin's invitation, he visited El Gore, he paid no heed to Yulela's blandishments. For according to the commands of her masters, which she dared not disobey, this girl allowed Gerard to look upon her, unveiled, and as if by chance, and she pretended affection for him, but Gerard gave her no heed. But I, I fell victim to her charms. Cormac snorted in disgust. Michael clutched his arm. Cormac, he cried, bethink you, all men are not iron like you. I swear I loved you, Layla, from the moment I first set eyes on her, and she loved me. I contrived to see her again, to steal into El Gore itself. Whence men got the tale that it was Gerard who was carrying on an affair with Nuredin's slave, snarled Fitzgeoffrey. Michael hid his face in his hands. Mine, the fault, he groaned. Then one night a mute brought a note signed by Eulela, apparently begging me to come with Sieur Gerard and his men-at-arms and save her from a frightful fate. Our love had been discovered, the note read, and they were about to torture her. I was wild with rage and fear. I went to Gerard and I told him all, and he, white soul of honour, vowed to aid me. He could not break his truce and bring Saladin's wrath upon the Christian cities, but he donned his mail and rode forth alone with me. We would see if there was any way whereby we might steal Yolela away, secretly. If not, my lord would go boldly to Nuruddin and ask the girl as a gift, or offer to pay a great ransom for her. I would marry her. Well, when we reached the place outside the wall of El Gore, where I was wont to meet Yolela, we found we were trapped. Nuruddin, Khosrow Malik, and their warriors suddenly rose about us on all sides. Nuruddin first spoke to Gerard, telling him of the trap he had set and baited, hoping to entice my lord into his power alone. And the Muslim laughed to think that the chance love of a squire had drawn Gerard into the trap where the carefully wrought plan had failed. As for the missive, Nuruddin wrote that himself, believing in his craftiness that Sieur Gerard would do just as indeed he did. Nuruddin and the Turk offered to allow Gerard to join them in their plan of empire. They told him plainly that his castle and lands were the price a certain powerful nobleman asked in return for his alliance. And they offered alliance with Sieur Gerard instead of this noble. Sieur Gerard merely answered that so long as life remained in him, he would keep faith with his king and his creed, and at the word the Muslims rolled on us like a wave. Ah, Cormac, Cormac, had you but been there with our men-at-arms, Gerard bore himself right manfully, as was his wont. Back to back we fought, and I swear to you that we trod knee-deep in the carpet of dead before Gerard fell and they dragged me down. Christ and the cross were his last words, as the Turkish spears and swords pierced him through and through, and his fair body, naked and gashed, was thrown to the kites and jackals. Michael sobbed convulsively, beating his fists together in agony. Cormac rumbled deep in his chest like a savage bull. Blue lights burned and flickered in his eyes. And you? he asked harshly. Me, they flung into a dungeon for torture, answered Michael. But that night Eulela came to me, an old servitor who loved her, and who had dwelt in El Gore before it fell to Nuruddin, freed me and led us both through a secret passage that leads from the torture chamber beyond the wall. We went into the hills on foot and without weapons, and wandered there for days, hiding from the horsemen sent forth to hunt us down. Yesterday we were recaptured and brought back to El Gore. An arrow had struck down the old slave who showed us the passageway. 
unknown to the present master of the castle, and we refused to tell how we had escaped, though Nuruddin threatened us with torture. This dawn, he brought me forth from the castle and hanged me to this gibbet, leaving that one to guard me. What he has done to Yalela, God only knows. You knew that Eli Eliar had fallen? Aye, Michael nodded dully. Khosru Malik boasted of it. The lands of Gerard now fall to his enemy, the traitor knight, who will come to Nuruddin's aid when the Muslim strikes for a crown. And who is this traitor? Asked Cormac softly. The Baron Conrad von Gonla, who I swear to spit like a hare. Cormac smiled thinly and bleakly. Swear me no oaths. Von Gonla has been in hell since dawn. I knew only that he refused to come to Gerard's aid. I could have slain him no deader had I known his whole infamy. Michael's eyes blazed. At a Gisclin to the rescue, he shouted fiercely. I thank thee, old war dog. One traitor is accounted for. What now? Shall Nuruddin and the Turk live while two men wear de Gisclin steel? Not if steel cuts and blood runs red, snarled Cormac. Tell me of this secret way. Nay, waste no time in words. Show me this secret way. If you escaped thereby, why shall we not enter the same way? Here, take the arms from that carrion while I catch his steed which I see browses on the moss among the rocks. Night is not far away. Mayhap we can gain through to the interior of the castle. There. His big hands clutched into iron sledges and his terrible eyes blazed. In his whole bearing there was apparent a plain tale of fire and carnage, of spears piercing bosoms and swords splitting skulls. Chapter 4 The Faith of Cormac When Cormac Fitzgeoffrey took up the trail to El Gore again, one would have thought at a glance that a Turk rode with him. Michael de Blois rode the bay Turkman steed and wore the peaked Turkish helm. He was girt with a curved scimitar and carried the bow and quiver of arrows, but he did not wear the mail shirt. The hammering hoofs of the plunging stallion had battered and braided out of all usefulness. Their companions took a circuitous route into the hills to avoid outposts, and it was dusk before they looked down on the towers of El Gore, which stood grim and sullen girt on three sides by scowling hills. Westward, a broad road wound down the steeps on which the castle stood. On all other sides, ravine-cut slopes straggled to the beetling walls. They had made such a wide circle that they now stood in the hills, almost directly east of the keep, and Cormac, gazing westward over the turrets, spoke suddenly to his friend. Look, a cloud of dust far out on the plain. Michael shook his head. Your eyes are far keener than mine. The hills are so clouded with the blue shadows of twilight, I can scarcely make out the blurred expanse that is the plain beyond, much less discern any movement upon it. My life has often depended on my eyesight, growled the Norman Gale. Look closely. See that tongue of plainsland that cleaves far into the hills like a broad valley to the north? A band of horsemen, riding hard, are just entering the defiles, if I may judge by the cloud of dust they raise. Doubtless a band of raiders returning to El Gore. Well, they're in the hills now. We are going is rough and it will be hours before they get to the castle. Let us to our task. Stars are blinking in the east. They tied their horses in a place hidden from sight of any watcher below down among the gullies. In the last dim light of dusk, they saw the turbans of the sentries on the towers. But gliding among boulders and defiles, they kept well concealed. At last Michael turned into a deep ravine. This leads to the subterranean corridor, he said. God grant it has not been discovered by Nuruddin. 
He had his warriors searching for something of the sort, suspecting its existence, when we refused to tell how we had escaped. They passed along the ravine, which grew narrower and deeper for some distance, feeling their way. Then Michael halted with a groan. Cormac, groping forward, felt iron bars, and as his eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, made out an opening like the mouth of a cave. Solid iron sills had been firmly bolted into the solid rock, and to these sills were set heavy bars, too close together to allow the most slender human to slip through. They've found the tunnel and closed it, groaned Michael. Cormac, what do we do? Cormac came closer and laid hands tentatively on the bars. Night had fallen, and was so dark in the ravine, even his cat-like eyes could hardly make out the objects close at hand. The big Norman Celt took a deep breath, and gripping a bar in each mighty hand, braced his iron legs and slowly exerted all his incredible strength. Michael, watching in amazement, sensed rather than saw the great muscles roll and swell under the pliant mail, the veins swell in the giant's forehead, and sweat burst out. The bars groaned and creaked, and even as Michael remembered that this man was stronger than King Richard himself, the breath burst from Cormac's lips in an explosive grunt, and simultaneously the bars gave way like reeds in his iron hands. One came away, literally torn from its sockets, and the other bent deeply. Cormac gasped, and shook the sweat out of his eyes, tossing the bar aside. By the saints, muttered Michael, are you man or devil, Cormac Fitzgeoffrey? That is a feat I deemed even beyond your power. Enough words, grunted the Norman. Let us make haste. If we squeeze through, it is likely that we'll find a guard in this tunnel, but it's a chance we must take. Draw your steel and follow me. It was as dark as the moor of Hades in the tunnel. They groped their way forward, expecting every minute to blunder into a trap, and Michael, stealing close at the heels of his friend, cursed the pounding of his own heart and wondered at the ability of the giant to move stealthily with no rattling of arms. To the comrades, it seemed that they groped forward in the darkness for an eternity, and just as Michael leaned forward to whisper that he believed they were inside the castle's outer walls, a faint glow was observed ahead. Stealing warily forward, they came to a sharp turn in the corridor around which shone the light. Peering cautiously around the corner, they saw that the light emanated from a flickering torch thrust into a niche in the wall, and beside this stood a tall Turk, yawning as he leaned on his spear. Two other Muslims lay sleeping in their cloaks nearby. Evidently, Nuruddin did not lay too much trust in the bars with which he had blocked the entrance. The guard, whispered Michael, and Cormac nodded, stepping back and drawing his companion with him. The Norman Gael's wary eyes had made out a flight of stone steps beyond the warriors with a heavy door at the top. These seemed to be all the weapon men in the tunnel, muttered Cormac. Loose a shaft at the waking warrior and do not miss. Michael fitted notch to string and leaning close to the angle of the turn aimed at the Turk's throat just above the hauberk. He silently cursed the flickering elusive light. Suddenly the drowsy warrior's head jerked up and he glared in their direction suspicion flaring in his eyes. Simultaneously came the twang of the loosed string, and the Turk staggered and went down, gurgling horribly and clawing at the shaft that transfixed his bull neck. The other two, awakened by their comrades' death throes and the sudden swift drum of feet on the ground, started up and were cut down as they rubbed at their sleep-filled eyes and groped for weapons. That was well done, growled Cormac, shaking the red drops from his steel. There was no sound that should have been carried through yonder door. Still, if it be bolted from within, 
our work is useless and we are undone. But it was not bolted, as the presence of the warriors in the tunnel suggested. As Cormac gently opened their heavy iron door, a sudden pain-fraught whimper from the other side electrified them. Eulela, gasped Michael, widening. Tis the torture chamber, and that is her voice. In God's name, Cormac. In! And the big Norman Gale recklessly flung the door wide and leapt through like a charging tiger, with Michael at his heels. They halted short. It was the torture chamber, right enough, and on the floor and the walls stood or hung all the hellish appliances that the mind of man has invented for the torment of his brother. Three people were in the dungeon, and two of these were bestial-faced men in leathern breeches who looked up, startled, as the Franks entered. The third was a girl who lay bound to a sort of bench, naked as the day she was born. Coals glowed in the braziers nearby, and one of the mutes was in the very act of reaching for a pair of white-hot pinches. He crouched now, glaring in amazement, his arms still outstretched. From the wide throat of the captive girl burst a piteous cry. Eulela! Michael cried out fiercely, and leapt forward, a red mist floating before his eyes. One of the beast-faced mutes was before him, lifting a short sword, but the young Frank, without checking his stride, brought down his scimitar in a sweeping arc that drove the curved blade through the scalp and skull. Wrenching his weapon free, he dropped to his knees beside the torture bench, a great sob tearing his throat. Eulela, Eulela, oh girl, what have they done to you? Michael, my beloved. Her great dark eyes were like stars in the mist. I knew you would come. They have not tortured me, save for a whipping. They were just about to begin. The other mute had glided swiftly toward Cormac as a snake glides, knife in hand. Satan, muttered the big warrior. I won't sully my steel with such blood. His left hand shot out and caught the mute's wrist and there was a crunch of splintering bones. The knife flew from the mute's fingers, which spread wide suddenly like an inflated glove. Blood burst from the fingertips, and the creature's mouth gaped in silent agony. And at that instant, Cormac's right hand closed on his throat, and through the open lips burst a red deluge of blood as the Norman's iron fingers ground flesh and vertebrae to a crimson pulp. Flinging aside the sagging corpse, Cormac turned to Michael, who had freed the girl and now was nearly crushing her in his arms as he gripped her close in the very passion of relief and joy. A heavy hand on his shoulder brought him back to the realisation of their position. Cormac had found a cloak and this he wrapped about the naked girl. Go at once, he said swiftly. It may not be long before others come to take the place of the guards in the tunnel. Here, you have no armour. Take my shield. No, don't argue. You may need it to protect the girl from arrows if you, if we, are pursued. Haste now. But you, Cormac. Michael lingered, hesitant. I will make fast that outer door, said the Norman. I can heap benches against it. Then I will follow you, but don't wait for me. This is a command, do you understand? Hasten through the tunnel and go to the horses. There, instantly mount the Turkoman horse and ride. I will follow you by another route. I by a road none but I can ride. Ride ye to Sir Rupert de Vale, Seneschal of Antioch. Here's our friend. Hasten now. Cormac stood a moment in the doorway at the head of the stairs and watched Michael and the girl hurry down the steps, past the place where the silent sentries lay, and vanish about the turn in the tunnel. Then he turned back to the torture chamber and closed the door. He crossed the room, threw the bolt on the outer door, and swung it wide. 
He gazed up a winding flight of stairs. Cormac's face was immobile. He had voluntarily sealed his doom. The giant Norman Celt was an opportunist. He knew that such a chance as had led him to the heart of his foe's stronghold was not likely to favour him again. Life was uncertain in Outremer. If he waited another opportunity to strike at Nuredin and Khosru Malik, that opportunity would not come. This was his best opportunity for the vengeance for which his barbaric soul lusted. That he would lose his own life in the consummating of that vengeance made no difference. Men were born to die in battle, according to his creed, and Cormac Fitzgeoffrey secretly leaned towards the belief of his Viking ancestors in a Valhalla for the souls loosed gloriously in the clash of swords. Michael, having found a girl, had instantly forgotten the original plan of vengeance. Cormac had no blame for him. Life and love were sweet to the young. But the grim Irish warrior owed a debt to the murdered Gerard and was prepared to pay with his own life. Thus, Cormac kept faith with the dead. He wished that he would have bade Michael ride the black stallion, but he knew that the horse would allow none but himself to bestride it. Now it would fall into Muslim hands, he thought with a sigh. He went up the stairs. Chapter 5 The Lion of Islam At the top of the stairs, Cormac came into a corridor, and along this he strode swiftly but warily, the north swords shimmering bluely in his hand. Going at random, he turned into another corridor, where he came full on to a Turkish warrior, who stopped short, agape, seeing a supernatural horror in this grim slayer who strode like a silent phantom of death through the castle. Before the Turk could regain his wits, the blue sword shore through his neck cords. Cormac stood above his victim for a moment, listening intently. Somewhere ahead of him, he heard a low hum of voices, and the attitude of this Turk with shield and drawn scimitar had suggested that he stood guard before some chamber door. An irregular torch faintly illumined the wide corridor, and Cormac, groping in the semi-darkness for a door, found instead a wide portal masked by heavy silk curtains. Parting them cautiously, he gazed through into a great room thronged with armed men. Warriors in mail and peaked helmets and bearing wide-pointed curved swords lined the walls, and on silken cushions sat the chieftains, rulers of Elgore and their satellites. Across the room sat Nuredin Elgore, tall, lean, with a high-bridged, thin nose and keen dark eyes, his whole aspect distinctly hawk-like. His Semitic features contrasted with the Turks about him, his lean, strong hand continually caressed the ivory hilt of a long, lean sabre, and he wore a shirt of mesh mail. A renegade chief from southern Arabia, this sheikh was a man of great ability. His dream of an independent kingdom in these hills was no mad hashish hallucination. Let him win the alliance of a few cellular chiefs, of a few Frankish renegades like von Gondler, and with the hordes of Arabs, Turks, and Kurds that would assuredly flock to his banner, Nuredin would be a menace both to Saladin and the Franks who still clung to the fringes of Outremer. Among the mailed Turks, Cormac saw the sheepskin caps and wolfskins of wild chiefs from beyond the hills, Kurds and Turkmens. Already the Arabs' fame was spreading if such unstable warriors as these were rallying to him. Near the curtain-hung doorway sat Khosru Malik, known to Cormac of old, a warrior typical of his race, strongly built of medium height with a dark, cruel face. 
Even as he sat in council, he wore a peaked helmet and a gilded male hauberk, and held across his knees a jeweled hilted scimitar. It seemed to Cormac that these men argued some matter just before setting out on some raid, as they were all fully armed. But he wasted no time on speculation. He tore the hangings aside with a mailed hand and strode into the room. Amazement held the warriors frozen for an instant, and in that instant the giant Frank reached Khosru Malik's side. The Turk, his dark features paling, sprang to his feet like a steel spring released, raising his scimitar. But even as he did so, Cormac braced his feet and smote with all his power. The Norse sword shivered the curved blade to blue sparks, and rending the gilded mail, severed the Turk's shoulder bone and cleft his breast. Cormac wrenched the heavy blade free from the split breastbone, and with one foot on Khosru Malik's body, faced his foes like a lion at bay. His helmed head was lowered, his cold blue eyes flaming from under the heavy black brows, and his mighty right hand held ready the stained sword. Nurdin had leapt to his feet and stood trembling in rage and astonishment. This sudden apparition came as near to unmanning him as anything had ever done. His thin, hawk-like features lowered in a wrathful snarl. His beard bristled, and with a quick motion he unsheathed his ivory-hilted saber. Then, even as he stepped forward, his warriors surged in behind him. A startling interruption occurred. Cormac, a fierce joy surging in him as he braced himself for the charge, saw, on the other side of the great room, a wide door swing open and a host of armed warriors appeared, accompanied by sundry of Nuredin's men, who wore empty scabbards and uneasy faces. The Arab and his warriors whirled to face the newcomers. These men, Cormac saw, were dusty as if from long riding, and his memory flashed to the horsemen he had seen riding into the hills at dusk. Before them strode a tall, slender man, whose fine face was traced with lines of weariness, but whose aspect was that of a ruler of men. His garb was simple in comparison to the resplendent armor and silken attendants, and Cormac swore in amazed recognition. Yet his surprise was no greater than that of the men of El Gore. What do you want in my castle, unannounced? gasped Nuredin. A giant in silvered mail raised his hand warningly and spoke sonorously. The Lion of Islam, Protector of the Faith, Yusuf ibn Ayyub Salah ad-Din, Sultan of Sultans, needs no announcement to enter yours or any castle, Arab. Nuruddin stood his ground, though his followers began salaaming madly. There was iron in this Arabian renegade. My lord, he said stoutly, it is true I did not recognize you when you first came into the chamber, but Elgor is mine, not by virtue of right or grant from any sultan, but the might of my own arm. Therefore, I make you welcome, but do not beg your mercy for my hasty words. Saladin merely smiled in a weary way. Half a century of intrigue and warring rested heavily on his shoulders. His brown eyes, strangely mild for so great a lord, rested on the silent Frankish giant who stood with his mail-clad foot on what had been the chief, Khosru Malik. And what is this? asked the sultan. Nuruddin scowled. A Nazarene outlaw has stolen into my keep and assassinated my comrade, the Seljuk. I beg your leave to dispose of him. I will give you his skull, set in silver. A gesture stopped him. Saladin stepped past his men and confronted the dark brooding warrior. I thought I recognized those shoulders and that dark face, said the sultan with a smile. You have turned your face east again, Lord Cormac. Enough, the deep voice of the Norman Irish giant filled the chamber. You have me in your trap. My life is forfeit. 
Waste not your time in taunts. Send your jackals against me and make an end of it. I swear by my clan, many of them shall bite the dust before I die, and the dead will be more than the living. Nurodin's tall frame shook with passion. He gripped his hilt until the knuckles showed white. Is this to be borne, my lord? He exclaimed fiercely. Shall this Nazarene dog fling dirt in our faces? Saladin shook his head slowly, smiling as if at some secret jest. It may be his is no idle boast. At Acre, at Azotus, at Yopa, I have seen the skull on his shield glitter like a star of death in the mist, and the faithful fall before his sword like garnered grain. The great Kurd turned his head, leisurely surveying the ranks of silent warriors and the bewildered chieftains who avoided his level gaze. A notable concourse of chiefs for these times of truce, he murmured half to himself. Would you ride forth in the night with all these warriors to fight genii in the desert? Or to honour some ghostly sultan, Nuruddin? Nay, nay, Nuruddin, thou hast tasted the cup of ambition, me seemeth, and thy life is forfeit. The unexpectedness of the accusation staggered Nuruddin, and while he groped for a reply, Saladin followed it up. It comes to me that you have been plotting against me. I that it was your purpose to seduce various Muslim and Frankish lords from their allegiances and set up a kingdom of your own. And for that reason, you broke the truce and murdered a good knight, albeit a kafar, and burned his castle. I have spies, Nuruddin. The tall Arab glanced quickly about, as if ready to dispute the question with Saladin himself. But when he noted the number of the Kurds' warriors and saw his own fierce ruffians shrinking away from him, awed, a smile of bitter contempt crossed his hawk-like features, and sheathing his blade, he folded his arms. God gives, he said simply, with the fatalism of the Orient. Saladin nodded in appreciation, but motioned back a chief who stepped forward to bind the sheikh. Here is one, said the sultan, to whom you owe a greater debt than to me, Nuruddin. I have heard Cormac Fitzgeoffrey was brother-at-arms to the Sieur Gerard. You owe many debts of blood, O Nuruddin. Pay one, therefore, by facing the Lord Cormac with the sword. The Arab's eyes gleamed suddenly. And if I slay him, shall I go free? Who am I to judge? asked Saladin. It shall be as Allah wills it. But if you fight the Frank, you will die, Nuruddin. Even though you slay him, he comes of a breed that slays even in their death throes. Yet it is better to die by the sword than by the cord, Nuruddin. The sheikh's answer was to draw his ivory-hilted sabre. Blue sparks flickered in Cormac's eyes as he rumbled deeply like a wounded lion. He hated Saladin, as he hated all his race, with the savage and relentless hatred of the Norman Celt. He had ascribed the Kurds' courtesy to King Richard and the Crusaders to oriental subtlety, refusing to believe that there could be aught but trickery and craftiness in the Saracen's mind. Now he saw in the sultan's suggestion but the scheming of a crafty trickster to match two of his foes against each other, and a feline-like gloating over his victims. Cormac grinned without mirth. He asked no more from life than to have his enemy at sword points, but he felt no gratitude towards Saladin, only a smouldering hate. The sultan and the warriors gave back, leaving the rivals a clear space in the centre of the great room. Nurdin came forward swiftly, having donned a plain round steel cap with a mail drop that fell about his shoulders. Death to you, Nazarene, he yelled, and sprang in with the pantherish leap and headlong recklessness of an Arab's attack.
Cormac had no shield. He parried the hacking saber with an upflung blade and slashed back. Muradin caught the heavy blade on his round buckler, which he turned slightly slantwise at the instant of impact so that the stroke glanced off. He returned the blow with a thrust that rasped Cormac's coif and leapt a spear's length backwards to avoid the whistling sweep of the Norse sword. Again, he leapt in, slashing, and Cormac caught the saber on his left forearm. Male links parted beneath the keen edge and blood splattered, but almost simultaneously, the Norse sword crashed against the Arab's arm, bones cracked, and Nuredin was flung his full length to the floor. Warriors gasped as they realized the full power of the Irishman's tigerish strokes. Nuredin's rise from the floor was so quick that he almost seemed to rebound from his fall. To the onlookers, it seemed that he was not hurt, but the Arab knew. His mail had held, the sword edged, had not gashed his flesh, but the impact, that terrible blow had snapped a rib like a rotten twig, and the realization that he could no longer avoid the Frank's rushes filled him with the wild beast determination to take his foe with him to eternity. Cormac was looming over Nuredin, sword high, but the Arab, nerving himself to a dynamic burst of superhuman quickness, sprang up as a cobra leaped from its coil and struck with desperate power. Full on Cormac's bent head, the whistling saber clashed, and the franks staggered as the keen edge bit through the steel cap and coif links into his scalp. Blood jetted down his face, but he braced his feet and struck back with all the power of arm and shoulders behind the sword. Again, Nuredin's buckler blocked the stroke, but this time the Arab had no way to turn the shield, and the heavy blade struck squarely. Nuredin went to his knees beneath the stroke, bearded face twisted in agony, and with tenacious courage he reeled up again, shaking the shattered buckler from his numbed and broken arm. But even as he lifted the saber, the north sword crashed down, cleaving the Muslim helmet and splitting the skull to the teeth. Cormac set a foot on his fallen foe and wrenched free his gory sword. His fierce eyes met the whimsical gaze of Saladin. Well, Saracen, said the Irish warrior, challengingly, I've killed your rebels for you. And your enemy, reminded Saladin. Aye, Cormac grinned bleakly and furiously. I thank you, though well I know it was no love of me or mine that prompted you to send the Arab against me. Well, make an end, Saracen. Why do you hate me, Lord Cormac? asked the Sultan curiously. Cormac snarled. Why do I hate any of my foes? You are no more and no less than any other robber chief to me. You tricked Richard and the rest with curtly words and fine deeds, but you never deceived me, who well knew you sought to win by deceit, where you could not gain by force of arms. Saladin shook his head, murmuring to himself. Cormac glared at him, tensing himself for a sudden leap that would carry the curd with him into the dark. The Norman Gale was a product of his age and his country. Among the warring chiefs of blood-drenched Ireland, mercy was unknown and chivalry an outworn and forgotten myth. Kindness to a foe was a mark of weakness, courtesy to an enemy a form of craft, a preparation for treachery. To such teachings had Cormac grown up in a land where a man took every advantage, gave no quarter, and fought like a blood-mad devil if he expected to survive. Now, at a gesture from Saladin, those crowding the door gave back. Your way is open, Lord Cormac. The gale glared, his eyes narrowing to slits. What game is this? He growled. Shall I turn my back on your blades? Out on it. 
All swords are in their sheaths, answered the Kurd. None shall harm you. Cormac's lion-like head swung from side to side as he glared at the Muslims. You honestly mean I am to go free after breaking the truths and slaying your jackals? The truce was already broken, answered Saladin. I find you in no fault. You have repaid blood for blood and kept your faith to the dead. You are rough and savage, but I would fain have men like you in my own train. There is a fierce loyalty in you, and for this I honour you. Cormac sheathed his sword ungraciously. A grudging admiration for this weary-faced Muslim was born in him, and it angered him. Dimly, he realised at last that this attitude of fairness, justice, and kindliness, even to foes, was not a crafty pose of Saladin's, not a manner of guile, but a natural nobility of the Kurd's nature. He saw suddenly embodied in the Sultan the ideals of chivalry and high honour so much talked of and so little practised by the Frankish knights. Blondel had been right then, and Sieur Gerard, when they argued with Cormac that high-minded chivalry was no mere romantic dream of an outworn age, but had existed, and still existed, and lived in the hearts of certain men. But Cormac was born and bred in a savage land, where men lived the desperate existence of the wolves, whose hides covered their nakedness. He suddenly realised his own innate barbarism, and was ashamed. He shrugged his lion's shoulders. I have misjudged you, Muslim, he growled. There is fairness in you. I thank you, Lord Cormac, smiled Saladin. Your road to the west is clear. And the Muslim warriors courteously salaamed as Cormac Fitzgeoffrey strode from the royal presence of the slender noble who was protector of the caliphs, Lion of Islam, Sultan of Sultans. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Trish. Hi, I'm Alex. Hi, I'm Connor. We're going to talk about Hawks of Outremer by Robert E. Howard, first published in the spring 1931 issue of Oriental Stories, which is a companion magazine to Weird Tales, sister magazine, perhaps. Um, there is an adaptation. I tried to send it to everybody. I got it very late. Sorry about that. Uh, done by Boom Studios, I think in 2009 or 10. Um, the version that I'm holding in my hand is the trade paperback, which I got secondhand somehow. Um, and it has a, uh, afterward by Mark Finn, who I tried to get on the podcast, but was not available. Had him on other times. And he is a Robert E. Howard expert. He's very fond of this story, I think. Um, and there is another adaptation done for Savage Sword of Conan, issue 222, which is, um, uh, freely translated, what do they, what do they call it? Freely adapted from the story into a Conan story. Inspired uh, by. Yeah. Uh, they, they use that term freely adapted. Basically, what they did is they filed off the name, uh, Cormac. And replaced it with the word Conan, which at one point in this story, Connor, I swear I heard you say the word Conan <laughs> instead I of may well have. <laughs> um. It's so similar. His his he's yeah. got these blue blazing lightning blue eyes. He's got a square cut black mane. He's got the he's described as a giant, right? He, no doubt, iron fuse were <laughs> mentioned somewhere. As well, I oh, the but at the end he has a very unconian conclusion. I agree. Yeah, that's a great, yeah. great difference. Um, uh, the one that got me this time it's one they sort of use a lot in 
in the Roy Thomas adaptations is sheer weight of numbers. <laughs> the only reason I got taken out or this guy got taken out was by sheer weight of numbers. If, mm. if it was all individual man against man, this guy would never have lost. But sheer, by sheer weight of numbers, or in the case of um, our hero, uh, Cormac Fitzjoffrey, um, he hit his um, way. He got hit in the head with a ballista, a stone from a ballista. Mm. Doesn't say, doesn't didn't say hit in the head, but it says knock senseless, right? So uh, compare that. <laughs> You know, the number of times Conan gets hit in the head, uh, or characters get hit in the head, the boxing, like, today, we would think that these guys would be, like, ultra brain damaged, but <laughs> back then, they didn't seem to think of that as as trauma- traumatic to your life as, uh, or maybe it is, I don't know. Well, they had the word punch drunk, which certainly uh, was, was referring to a man had been punched in the head so many times, he acted as though he were drunk. Right. Yeah, but I don't think that was seen as a permanent phenomenon. So, um, you guys notice his last name, Fitzjoffrey? Mm. Um, Bastard son of Jeffrey? I don't know yeah, which Jeffrey, though. Fitz means son of. Um, but it he, means I, bastard son of, doesn't it? Uh, well, he is a... Uh, yeah. Well, no, he's not a bastard son. He, uh, Joffrey was a bastard. Yeah. Well, there could have been a line of Fitz, Fitzjeffreys <laughs> or Fitzjoffreys. Well, yes, but his he says his dad was named Joffrey. He was a Norman, right? He's half Norman, half Celt. And uh, so he's Cormac, which is a very uh, land of Ireland name, right? And Joffrey, mm-hmm. which is a very uh, Norman sort of name. But the that combo, um, this is a very special story, I think. I think it's really interesting. As well as, you know, it's super fun. I mean, it's th- very manny. <laughs> yeah. I think um, uh, you can definitely see Robert E. Howard nerding out a lot about history mm. in this mm-hmm. one, especially at the start. He goes into so much detail. with uh, He places the story really solidly in a certain place and time mm-hmm. and talking about who is doing what and what is happening and naming people like dropping historical references mm-hmm. a lot so, of So yeah mhm and uh some of them are real people uh some of the other smaller characters are not i was trying to look up and uh figure out who was real and who was not um so robert devale who he talks to at the start is definitely a real person though who was this seneschal of antioch i believe um and uh and i was trying to figure out whether his father, Jeffrey the Bastard, was actually based on a real person as well. Um, and Don't I couldn't know. quite pin it down. I, I, I just assumed he wasn't. You know, the Richard Lionheart, or Richard Lionheart, he's mm. real. I knew that. Obviously, Saladin is real. Um, this is, uh, this is, uh, actually, that's right in the, that closing essay. Um, I'll just read, uh, he has two quotes from a letter to Lovecraft from 1933. Um, Robert E. Howard wrote to his friend H.P. Lovecraft in September 1933, There is no literary work to me half as zestful as rewriting history in the guise of fiction. I wish I was able to devote the rest of my life to that kind of work. And then um, later on, he uh, he says, um, 
I could never make a living writing such things, though the markets are too the markets are too scanty, the requirements too narrow, and it takes me so long to complete one. I try to write as true to the actual facts as possible. At least I try to commit as few errors as possible. I like to have my background and setting as accurate and realistic as I can with my limited knowledge. If I twist facts too much, alter dates, as some writers do, or present a character out of keeping with my impression of the time and place, I lose my sense of reality and my characters cease to be living and vital things. And my stories center entirely upon conceptions... Oh, and my stories center entirely on my conceptions of my characters. Once I lose the feel of my characters, I might as well tear up what I have written. And once I have a definite conception of a character in my mind, it destroys the feeling of reality to have that individual act in any manner inconsistent with the character in which I have visualized him. My characters do not say illogical and inconsistent things. Uh, my, no, my characters do say illogical and inconsistent things, inconsistent as far as general things go, but they are consistent to my conception of them. So... I think he is writing to a point here. And what's so interesting is we think of uh, everybody likes to poop on Lovecraft right now because he's, he's very popular. <laughs> but mm. Howard is equally, if not more racist than, um, than Lovecraft. Um, and yet this is a story in which it's not so much, I guess, race as it is, um, culture. And barbarian civilization. The whole point of this story is kind of saying, yeah, uh, England's fucked up. Ireland's fucked up. France is fucked up. Um, here is fucked up too. Um, but then there's this guy, Saladin, who is not who Fitzjoffrey has been saying he is throughout the whole story. Mm. He's something else. And this is like a, an impression that you get about Saladin, uh, from what? A thousand years later, we still have the sense that, oh, there's this honorable guy who even these whacked, you know, m religious zealots uh, on a conquering spree seem to respect. How's that work? Mm. Well, let's see. How many of the, the Howard Lovecraft letters have you read? Not that many. And are you familiar with how the debate began? Uh, no. No. Whatever. I know they debate, I didn't Howard write to Lovecraft. And then they, yeah, he wrote him. Um, and I think that letter is not extant. It's not in the, the means of freedom collection. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it was about really a debate over the peopling of the British Isles mm. and language. And, and just to kind of sum it up, there's a lot of technical anthropology and history in those letters. Mm -hmm. But it really comes down to Lovecraft saying like, you know, there's kind of this Anglo-Saxon civilization, mm -hmm. right? And there's a Celtic civilization and they both exist in the, in the British Isles. And Howard says, no, it's, it's, it's all migration. It's all different people moving in. Right. So if you take a look at this guy, like the Normans, he's half Norman, right? Mm -hmm. And mm. Just take like world history, you might think, oh, the Normans are sort of like French, but actually they're Vikings, mm -hmm. right? Like the Vikings conquered Normans. Yeah, they're like two generations away from Vikings. Yeah. Uh, what's William the Conqueror was descended from? Yeah, it, William the Bastard. Yeah. So, so right away, this debate over like civilization versus kind of barbarism was there in the first letters they wrote to each other. And that's certainly a theme in this story. Of course, written two years before they started. Or a year before they started writing each other, mm. they started thirty-two. 
Right? Yeah, that sounds right. So, yeah. And he, he's and obsessed story, with it. You end up, like, I think it, I agree with you. It's really interesting on race. I mean, there is the backdrop of race. Mm-hmm. Right? There's this idea of Anglo Saxon. The German's the bad guy in this one, right? uh, Muslims and and all this. But, right, that doesn't correspond with, like, value in in the way that, like, Lovecraft talks about Mm -hmm. race. It's really something that's really entrenched in almost in the blood and the soil. He's he he has something about character that Lovecraft doesn't really... Lovecraft doesn't really care about characters. Um, You know, they, they exist and they play a function, but that's not the focus. Whereas Howard, like we remember his characters, right? That's, you know, that's why he's got the Conans and the Solomon Canes and the Cormac MacArts and Cormac uh, Fitzjoffreys, right? And his, he's got all these drunken, not drunken, boxing sailors, right? It's a, uh, it's a, he is a series guy, but the series are based around characters and his mm. themes are always the same. He's always interested in, manliness in a way that Lovecraft is absolutely uninterested. He's, he's gentlemanliness, right? Yeah. Is what he cares about. And, and race purity and, you know, the stars, whereas Lovecraft, whereas Howard is like, oh yeah, the stars and, and, you know, scary monsters from out of time are really strange, but really I, I'm, I'm a character guy. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, if, if, Robert was dealing with the same kind of thing, like topics that Lovecraft was dealing with. He would want to put some sort of a character up against them. Mm. That's how he would position it. He actually he does do pastiches of, of Lovecraft, right? The black stone. There's a guy mm-hmm. who swoons, right? And it feels like, like a Lovecraft story with sort of the, sort of raced through rather than, um, dashed off and, and sort of showing that he could do it. And he absolutely could. Mm. The Black Stone's a really good, you know, Lovecraftian style story, but it it, it, do, it that's not his bread and butter, seemingly. Whereas it, it seems it's like Lovecraft couldn't really do that. He would or didn't do that. But uh, I I, I want to change the subject slightly, just because we are going to get to the story. I I promise. But um, I I found something really cool. Um, when I was digging around, I was thinking, you know, I should, maybe I should watch that Saladin movie that's very highly rated. Uh, maybe I could watch the Kingdom of Heaven because it's, you know, just pre Third Crusade, right? But I've seen Kingdom of Heaven before and it's, this story is not really about Saladin. So I thought, oh, I'll dig around and I found, um, this dude named Bertrand de Born. Um, so he's a baron, a knight, a troubadour, and a monk. Started off, you know, being born a baron with a bunch of co-barons in France, northern France, um, Normandy. Um, and he went on crusade, the third crusade, um, and was there with, he was actually sort of calling uh, Richard the Lionhearted cowardly for not going earlier, but he was, uh, Richard the Lionhearted was kind of busy, you know, consolidating and getting the taxes going to get it all going. So, um, but he, wrote poems slash songs, right, about what's, what he did and what other people were doing down there. Um, and then later in life, he died in 1215, born in 1140. So he was, he was, uh, 75 years old when he died. Um, he, uh, he shows up in Dante's Inferno as a character. Um, Gustave Doré did an illustration of him in hell, 
carrying his own head around like a lantern. Um, uh, the uh, guy who wrote, um, Dante Alighieri wrote, uh, had a lot of axes to grind. So he, he thought, uh, this guy, Bertrand de Bourne was responsible for some bad stuff in France. Um, he, there's, uh, illustrations of him jousting. Um, he gave a Richard Lionhearted a nickname. It's Os Enon. And it translates to yes and no. So the, he was both yes and no. And then I've got a translation by Ezra Pound, no less, of one of his poems. Um, it goes like this. Uh, this is basically the, the stuff that happened the year before the story starts. We shall see axes and swords, a battering, colored homes, and a hacking through shields at entering melee, and many vassals smiting together, whence there run free the horses of the dead and wrecked. And when each man of prowess shall be come into the fray, he thinks no more of merely breaking heads and arms, for a dead man is worth more than one taken alive. I tell you that I find no si such savor in eating butter and sleeping, as when I hear cried, On them! And from both sides hear horses neighing through their head guards and hear shouted, To aid! To aid! And see the dead with lance truncheons, the pennants still on them, piercing their sides. Barons put in pawn castles and ta, put in pawn, put in pawn castles and towns and cities before anyone makes us, makes war on us. Papiole, be glad to speedily to the yea and nay, and tell him there's too much peace about. So this is, this last pit here, I'm going to just translate it into more understandable English. Um, barons, he's talking, everybody, all the rich guys, put in pawn castles, that is sell your castles, or rent out your castles, or, you know, put them into hawk, your towns, your cities, and take the war to the Holy Land. Papiol, be glad, go speedily to yea and nay, that he's talking about Richard Lionheart, and tell him there's too much peace about. This is hardcore, yo. Right? Mm. That, that's, uh, that's the spirit that's inside of, of Cormac Fitzjoffrey, right? Mm. The war madness. It, um, this, uh, story almost reminded me a little bit of Apocalypse Now. Oh, uh, yeah. In the sense <laughs> of it's at the end of this war and there's these people who are veterans. Um, of the war and they're, and it's like, what's their place in the world mm -hmm. if they're not a soldier? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what it feels like with Cormac is he's just wandering aimlessly. Like yeah, he returned like in his poem. Right. And notice much peace around. at the beginning, he's, he comes back. He's a ghost. Everybody thinks he's a ghost. And mm. they said, you, we heard you went west. You were, we killed off of, uh, Sicily. No, it wasn't me who died. Many died that day, but it wasn't me who died. I just was knocked senseless. And, um, whenever somebody sees him, they think he's a ghost. He's returned, you know, with that skull on his shirt and on his, uh, his shield. And then at the end of the story, Saladin says the West is open, right? Don't come back to the East, go to the West. Mm. S sending him, you know, get, you know, it's time to go. And yep. that's really, uh, that's why it is that, um, he is the difference, though, between this and um, Heart of Darkness or um, 
or Apocalypse Now is that he is the crazy one. Right? Yeah. And, and Saladin's the, the sane one. Yeah. In, uh, in one of your tweets, I uh, saw you quoted Robert E. Howe said that he thought that Cormac was his most morose character mm. he'd ever written. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe not true in um, Cormac's outward actions and what he says, because he's not a big talker. Um, or, yeah, not so much about his, I suppose, feelings. But he is in terms of, if you look at his character, he is kind of a sad character. Mm-hmm. Somber um, is the word he used. My most yeah, somber, somber character. Mm-hmm. I have yet attempted. Uh, that's the gigantic melancholy. But this precedes Conan, right? Mm. Oh, really? Just yes. Like just a couple years year. later, he's, okay. yeah. He, yeah uh, this okay. actually was written in 30, so it didn't come out until 31. And the second one came out in 32, the second story in this series. But yeah, he, he's, he is a, he's a sale, an unsaleable version of Conan, right? Mm. An unworkable version of Conan because there's so much research involved. Whereas Conan, he just makes it up, right? This, <laughs> this land, this country, that, that thing. And the story works perfectly without any, uh, you know, so- sorcery. It's just sword. Mm. I find. I think it, it might even work better because it has I those re- real resonances. The Savage Sword? Uh-huh. I, I wasn't nearly as good. No, it was not a great uh, artistic rendering either, but... No, it was, it was ugly looking. Yeah, it was kind of dark and messy. Um, whereas the version we've got here um, in the Boom Studios, I think it's pretty good. It's a little bit Spartan in the backgrounds, um, but the Jusco art makes <laughs> makes me think of it uh, he did the covers uh, for one for each, and then the uh, interior artist did one for for the covers as well. Uh, Jusco is just amazing. Uh, do you all I get a chance to really see that? I don't think you really need elaborate backgrounds for the art in this. Thing, no, it's so. about the eyes, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's about what the and the swords um, and the sa- the sound effects are really well done. There's a uh, one thing Mark Finn points out. Is that there's an eight page sequence in maybe issue three where it's almost completely wordless. Yeah, I'm mm. looking. There's three panels and there's yeah is the only words written on the, <laughs> and then it goes clink clank and then you just see arms flopping off and heads <laughs> going away. Right. Well, for for a Conan comic. Really- where you've got, you know, a, a hidden temple and, you know, weird peoples and stuff like that. I kind of want to see the background there. But for this, you know, it's it's a castles, medieval castles in Utremer. And mm-hmm. that's okay, you know, just some green really, stone walls. And what you really want is the plot there. No, we get a little moss for the horse to chew on. <laughs> 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 that's about it. Um, I think... I am. Um, didn't did read you, the whole. Did you look at the. Go ahead. Oh, uh, sorry. No, no. Um, I was going to say, uh, I didn't read the whole comic, but um, one of my favorite parts in the story is towards the end is the action sequence where he's fighting some guy and he he says like, "I'm not even going to waste my sword on you." Mm. And he grabs he grabs his hand and the description of is about his hand swelling up like a glove and then exploding <laughs> with the pressure. Indeed. Of the, uh, yeah, that is, was pretty pretty gory. He he uh, yeah. then proceeds to grab the guy by the throat and squeeze it so hard that the vertebrae and uh, you know crush and blood spurts out of his mouth. It is uh, 
it is not for the faint of heart, but you know, I, I thought it was uh, quite vivid. <laughs> <laughs> Very vivid. That's the word for it. He, um, he, it's interesting. The one of the who's that? Um, Alex, you'll know who I'm talking about. Does the out of Japan? It's Conan the Salary Man. Conan the Salary Man. Yeah, um, I think she does a really good job of using the word that's here used over and over again, giant, right? The giant, even though he's only six, uh, what, a quarter of an inch over six feet, uh, he's described as a giant continuously in this. Uh, only one time, I think, in the whole thing is a cat. Uh, his cat-like step. Um, his panther's panther movements. Yeah, his panther-ish <laughs> uh, movements in his armor and stuff. But uh, there's a kind of... Um, he is... It's really interesting. I, I, I setting him up against Saladin, who is, is not, uh, he's not unforceful himself, right? Um, and then setting him up against, uh, Richard Lionhearted, who he is, our hero admires because he is, um, he is so formidable in battle. Um, and then when he talks about when he gets in his cups, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Saladin. Yeah, he calls him a fool, though. He's yes. Like, yeah, he, He's a great fighter, but he's still a fool. And he is a fool. If you think about what happens to him, he, he, at the beginning of the story, we, this is all backstory, right? We get a lot of backstory in this. Um, Lion, Lionheart's, he's inside Germany somewhere, they think, um, being ransomed, right? And this mm-hmm. is... Meanwhile, Robin Hood's running around. Indeed. That's, that's what's so interesting is Ivanhoe is set in the same period, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is a very um, rich piece of... Uh, just two or three years where there's a hell of a lot going on all over the place. In fact, I was thinking the timeline of, of how long was Cormac, uh, Fitzjoffrey gone before he returned? He seemed to go to England, France, <laughs> Ireland, and then came straight back. I mean, that killed a bunch of people, burned a castle. That's right. <laughs> got a sword from a sea king, avenged his <laughs> Who, brother. Yep. Came back home. And then, uh, that, that Matt, he, he even has as close to, Howard will give a magic sword, right? It has runes on it, and they speak. The, they speak to his um, his uh, his true beliefs, right? He's supposedly here as a as a crusader, but who does he swear by? It's not Crom, by Satan. <laughs> and he's got that skull on his chest. He is kind of like a symbol of war. Right, a symbol mm-hmm. of of the of the craziness that is the Crusades, yeah, and then you know, he spends the whole story saying, "Swear me no oaths." Like, right. He's like, "Well, I swear this." And he's like, "Nope, nope, no swearing." That's right. No right. Well, he's offered a job by by Richard to be one of his men, and turns him down flat, um, and uh, uh, just because. Well, as you say, he thinks that Richard is a fool, and you know, doesn't think admirable he's- though. Sorry, he's admirable, right? He admires his ability at war, right? But not enough to take service with him, right? To take direct service. And him. notice what Saladin says at the end, right? He says, uh, "I would have you among my men because of the way uh, you have acted in honor to repay mm-hmm. a blood debt," right? And you know, I don't have a war with you. The truce is not broken by you. 
And uh, so, yeah, he he has actually found this is there's a genre for this today. It's called historical fiction, right? It's like a very popular genre where you get a bunch of uh, some setting, you know, some piece of history. And then you throw a character who is not real into the mix and, you know, sort of seeing that piece of history from that point of view. That's exactly what we've got here. This is like a tiny interregnum between uh, uh, yet another crusade and another betrayal. It's a great time period too. It's 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 towards the end of this this mm-hmm. you know this crusade, and it's not just Cormac. You got like everyone is becoming free agents at, at this point. Right, that's right. That's what all those everyone, everyone knows is breaking down. And, God, what all Conrad these free states Jondler and all those other knights trying to craft their own little kingdoms there. All these bastard sons. Is that what yeah. the title is referring it's to? Like yeah, Utrener. Is, I think it, that's. The, the I, talks just mean all the men who are turning into cell swords and and. Uh, you're exactly right, Trish. Robbers. That's that's exactly what it is because the title doesn't make a lot of sense if you don't think of it as as sort of symbolic of what is actually happening, because there is a, what, what's an, again a sort of trope of Robert E. Howard is he has a girl right. There's a girl at the center of the action. But in this case, it's not his girl, right? It's not a girl who is attracted to him. He's helping another dude, right? Get his girl, girl back. But that's sort of an ancillary quest, right? It's a, 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 on the same path. And it's not his quest. His, he seems to have like a death wish, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I'll he's be there right for. Behind you. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to write behind you. Yeah. And, and, and he has that skull on his, on his, uh, his shield, which he gives away, right? But it still has it on his jerkin. It, 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 it when I, I was telling this to people, I don't know who I sold it to this way, but I'll, I probably sold it to Connor this way. He's like, he's like the Punisher, uh, <laughs> from, from the, uh, Middle Ages or from, you know, 1060 or whatever, 1090s, um, 1190, whatever it is. He, it wouldn't be the tens. That, that was, uh, no. William the Conqueror. Yeah, so. it's it's a couple, couple of generations, a couple couple of few generations after that. But the the idea of him, if you think about why the Punisher is a really cool character, is because he is insane, right? That's he's got a war on crime, which will never end, right? And he only wants just wants to punish criminals. Well, who is he? <laughs> he's a vigilante, mm-hmm. right? He, um, here, there, he swears, you know, he's not going to follow any people, but every person he does follow, he ends up getting him into trouble, right? The guy he's back to avenge, um, after he finds out his castle was burnt for a girl, all that, right? Um, that's going to get him into trouble. It's like he goes looking for trouble, right? He's signing mm-hmm. himself up for trouble. And when he puts himself in that death trap that he seems to want, Saladin's like, no. I have no problem with you. I'd like to have you in my service. Too bad I don't, you're not on my team. I'll go off to the West now. And it's like, yeah. well, you broke him. <laughs> you broke him by doing the only thing that he can't, that he didn't want, right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure he'll find some other fight to be involved <laughs> Indeed, in. Indeed, there's at least one more adventure. Mm. To do with a jewel, yeah. no less. By the way, Richard died in 1199. Yeah. He was, it seems to me, like, from our perspective, he seems to be a really bad, incompetent king. But the, the propaganda for him is very positive, right? Mm-hmm. 
And in the same way, like, I, I don't know anything about Saladin's rule. Uh, they call him a, a, um, a Kurd in this, I think, right? Mm. They did in the story. Yeah. I don't know really anything about I would assume that's history. correct. I know that in several novels that I've read, he's referred to also as chivalrous in those, too. Uh, I remember an incident that it talks about one of, I can't remember where I read it, but yeah. apparently Richard I was unhorsed in battle, and so Saladin sent him one of his own horses, which, of course, the difference between an Arab steed, mm. uh, small and quick, uh, and a an English uh uh, horse for a <laughs> for a for a fully armored knight was just ridiculous, mm-hmm. but apparently he did it uh, unknown Saladin whether as a joke great. or you know in a true true generous spirit. A Saladin was a Kurd, so that's correct. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, he uh, the guy who he the castle guy at the end who uh, gets into a beef with basically trying to uh, break up the two teams and make their own. Hawk, hawk, hawk their own wares, right? Um, he's a, he's an, he's called, calls him an Arab, right? So they're united in their religion, but it, in the same way that we see like this, um, the, uh, what's, what does he say? Uh, the, uh, I dismounted. And then the guy says, dismounted? And he says, well, I prefer fighting on foot, right? Um, not a uh, no, no, he says, I'm not a, uh, uh, oh yeah, she knight. That's exactly right. Was, was it a French sea knight? Yeah, French she knight. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, wow, that was just, um, kind of rude, <laughs> kind mm. of stereotyping. But he's got a German who's, uh, who's belly fat, right? And takes, he throw, this is a, another theme. He throws his weapons that are supposed to be not thrown. To kill people, he's got a battle axe that he throws, and then he he throws a a lance as well, like a javelin. Yeah. And it's that, that um, impossible grip that we see right in the first frame of the the first paragraph. Right, his grip goes on somebody's shoulder, and it's like I don't know, like a vice or something. Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, crushing the guy's hand and stuff like that. Right. And bending the iron bars at the end. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's almost, it's ridiculous, but, um, it's a great storytelling thing to have this unstoppable, like you said, the Punisher. Um, he's just plowing through people. Um, and looking for enemies, looking for, looking for, for, like going everywhere, trying to make trouble and not, mm. not, to get justice exactly because he doesn't even believe in what he's doing there right he he said he followed a young guy he admired or something and then that guy died and so he returned home and then ah that didn't work so now he's back for visit some friend. he he makes friends very easily but not with with powerful people he makes them with people who need his help who mm. need to who are getting into trouble it's it's very interesting like a uh, we got Trish here, so she's uh, she's a she's a girl. <laughs> I am very interested in Howard because he's he is so different from like Lovecraft in what Lovecraft thinks is a man is very different than what Howard thinks is a man. Um, and then compared to like what I was just uh, listening to HP Love uh, HP Podcraft, they were talking about Oscar Wilde's um, 
uh, not the importance of being earnest, although that's pretty funny too. Um, his, uh, a picture of Dorian Gray. And mm-hmm. then I watched the episode of Star Trek that was a next generation that's their adaptation of a picture of Dorian Gray. And I'm like, Oh yeah, these themes are really like universal. So one where Troy becomes a, uh, an old woman to help some guy do some negotiations or something and crazy jealous and, and sexual. And it's like really weird. Like what is going on? Mm-hmm. And then all I right is picture of Dorian Gray, right? It's like, he's pretty, he takes all his, his perversions and he puts them out of his body into not the painting, but another person. And mm-hmm. so thinking about like well, the way Oscar Wilde is a man, is he goes into a conversation with you and defeats you using nonsense logic, right? If you try and analyze anything Oscar Wilde says, it is absolutely indefensible on an, on a philosophical level, but it sounds great, right? It's, it's, it's like, um, rhetorical flourish rather than rhetorical substance. Whereas this guy's the exact opposite, right? He's like, by Satan, I, I'll crush your fucking head. <laughs> and and then Lovecraft right, well, you know, walk in the streets. Quote, I forget the exact mm-hmm. words, but at some point he says to um, Michael Dubois, I believe he says, uh, "Enough words, time to move." Mm-hmm. Something like that. That seems to be his whole philosophy, right? And and so it, it's a, like he is a he's an experiment in manhood is is what I'm thinking, and and that's why his stuff is so incredibly powerful because he's tapped into like a vein of the guys who spend all their time at the gym buffing up. And then there's a sort of another vein where there's these guys who are in the military and they, they do the same thing. They think of themselves as warriors. Right. And I'm like, well, I, me, my dad died when I was young, so I don't have a hundred percent model to go by. Right. I, I have to find out who, what, who I am going to be by looking around at the world and I've got uncles and I've got, uh, you know, advisors and, uh, friends and stuff like that. But, uh, what's interesting is Howard is speaking to people more than, more than a hundred years now, right? See, when he started writing and his stuff is still incredibly powerful and it's sort of unsurpassed in for what it is. And this is a really good example of that. And it, it, it's completely different than, when you're reading Lovecraft, he's, he's like walking down the street with a notebook wearing a tie, right? Thinking about the stars and, and, uh, composing lines of poetry. And Howard was absolutely doing that too. But then he's also in the boxing ring. Mm. And then mm-hmm. when his mom dies, he does the only sane thing that he can think of. Kill himself? What? Right? So there's like a kind of, uh, uh, wrestling with, what it is to be a man that you see in this with Saladin being sort of a defeat of the conventional way that Howard is going with. Cull is a, a little more philosophical or a lot more philosophical than Conan, but this guy's sort of, he's even farther than Conan in, mm. in down that path, if you know what I mean. What's the name it's of the first chapter, right? A Man Returns. Right. It's just, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. I am... <laughs> Right. Well, if um, if uh, if sorry, sorry, if uh, our protagonist here were a total caricature, he would probably just dismiss Saladin's chivalry as being 
I don't know, Namby Pamby or something like that. He, he thinks or, it's a trick, the whole the whole story until the end, right? He thinks it's it's right, just but it's, he, he's he tricking is them. Enough of an aware thinking person to be able to recognize that Saladin is genuine and to respect that in him. Yeah, and so, and and so, he sees you know, that I, he, he's he sees not just a, a walking sword. <laughs> no. He does have some sense of honor himself. But it but sort of has to be handed to him, right? So like when when he he's talks about what Europe is like, he's saying it's much like here, right? Where every man is betraying every man and it's just a feint to get in, you know, behind your defenses. Um mm-hmm. it's it, which is what most of this plot is, right? Most of the plot is in fact, that's what it's about. It's about, uh, you know, betraying fealty. Um, and so one way he deals with it is he doesn't offer fealty to anybody, right? Because then you can't be betrayed. But he has this problem where he's got friends and your f- friends are betrayed. Well, that makes their fight his fight. And so y- you see that in Conan too, like with Queen of the Black Coast at the beginning of the story. Uh, Conan is in. <laughs> He's in a courtroom <laughs> and they say, um, yeah, we, uh, you are a witness to, uh, this crime. You saw your friend run away. You know where he's hiding. Uh, please tell us where he is. And he says, I'm not going to tell you because he is my friend. And he said, well, you, uh, judge says, you have a duty to the state, you know, and it gives him a big long moral lecture. And what's Conan do? He says, this is ridiculous. And he cleaves the judge's head. <laughs> Right, <laughs> he's got a sword in the courtroom, and just runs to the docks and flees. Right, he he is he is on that guy's team because he had a drink with him, right, and he was a friend, which is kind of manly loyalty that also gets you into wars a lot of the time, right? Where you say, uh, "America was attacked." Well, 9-11. Oh, fuck. That means Canada has to go to war and Australia has to go to war and New Zealand has to go to war and England has to go to war. And uh, all right. of these. It's co- the same kind of mentality. It is. Where you have the thin blue line where, you know, if you see another cop do something wrong, you just keep silent Indeed. about it because to do otherwise and, you know, turn the guy in for committing a crime. Would but be they've all signed up, right? Loyalty. That's right. So w- the difference here is, is he doesn't sign up. Uh, under a king or, right, he, he, he says, I'm not a knight, I'm a lord in my own land. Right? And mm-hmm. again, we don't see him in his own land. He talks about running around in bearskins and such, but it, it, this is a very interesting story. Like, in, sure. like I, I kind of think of, I was thinking about this on my drive back here from my mom's house, thinking about, like, how I try and make this argument, and people seem to shut it down pretty quick. But I think of it—he's like philosoph—he's philosophizing. I can't even say the word, uh, philosophizing in fiction, in the in a way about what it is to be a man and what it is not to be a man. And he doesn't. So the women that are in the stories—they're sort of a way of addressing men's duties towards women, but they're not really. It's not. He doesn't really care about you know, what women's duties are, right? Mm. I 100% agree. And I think um, I wanted to bring up Saladin again, mm-hmm. because to me, this is, um, it's, Rob- it's Robert's stereotypical male characters who is putting forth sort of his own ideals, I suppose, of masculinity, maybe. Um, and, but this story is 
almost like a bit of a love letter to Saladin. Mm-hmm. Saladin shows up in the end, um, mm-hmm. and Saladin to me represents okay. There's Cormac, it's Robert's sort of male character, and then Saladin represents a completely different way of being a man. Mm-hmm. Saladin's sort of undeniably, right? yeah, sorry, civilized, yeah, and um, and he's um, and he's undeniably very charismatic leader, uh, and. Uh, very chivalrous. Um, so, uh, Trish, you were talking about um, Saladin sort of sending a horse to um, somebody in... Uh, to Richard. Yeah, to Richard. He also... Um, Richard... Another thing, I was doing a bit of research on Saladin and, and Richard. Um, and Richard got really sick when he was on Crusade um, because he didn't have any fresh fruit. And he got mm. ill. And it looked like Richard might die. And Saladin actually sent him a bunch of fresh fruit and was oh, like, eat this, wow. get better. Because Saladin wanted to face him in battle because he knew it was going to be this legendary battle. He had heard mm. about Richard being this amazing leader and he wanted to face off against him. And so that's very chivalrous. But also um, Richard had captured, I forget which city it was. It might have been Yopa. Um, and they'd captured tons of Muslim uh, Muslims in when they took the city and Richard, I believe he was basically like, look, we can't release them because then they're just going to go join the enemy and then we'll have to fight them again next week. We, and we can't keep them because we just don't have the food. So his choice was to just basically slaughter them all. Mm -hmm. And Saladin was in exactly the same position, I believe when he took Jerusalem and except he let all the Christians go hundred percent, let them go. So very, very, chivalrous and fair and generous and i think um we're talking about saladin being a kurd um i think it comes a little bit from that because saladin was a kurd but it seems like he was also among arabs who Mm -hmm. maybe didn't think a lot of him because he was from a different background than them and i think he maybe prided himself on this kind of generosity um and chivalrousness because people thought bad of him um from the start because he wasn't an Arab. And so his, his idea was like, I'm just going to prove you wrong. I'm going to prove that I'm a really loyal, uh, have really strong principles and I'm a great leader. Um, so this story is kind of about, you know, Robert E. Howard's typical masculine character meeting a different way of being a a man, Mm -hmm. which is embodied in Saladin. Yeah. And it's interesting. He might've, just preferred to actually write a story about Saladin, <laughs> but maybe he felt like that would not be as saleable as mm. uh, as one with a European I, uh, I, hero. I think you also have to remember it's a Mary Sue, like what they always say about <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh-huh. Robert E. Howard is writing about the man he wants to be, and right. Uh, right, and so sometimes he's a Puritan, right, and sometimes he's a, a barbarian <laughs> um but no matter what he's strong and he's chivalrous right um mm-hmm. and and he's he's kind to his friends and cruel to his enemies um and people respect him right the way he writes the characters and the way people are intimidated by him that's like a male fantasy right that he yeah. is writing that his audience appreciates um, I want to read, uh, this is right near, uh, this is on page 570, uh, sorry, 454, um, right before it turns into 575, uh, at the bottom. Saladin shook his head, murmuring to himself. Cormac glared at him, tensing himself for a sudden leap that would carry the Kurd with him into the dark, capital D. The Norman Gale was a product of his age and his country, 
Among the warring chiefs of blood-drenched Ireland, mercy was unknown and chivalry an outworn and forgotten myth. Kindness to a foe was a mark of weakness. Courtesy to an enemy a form of craft, a preparation for treachery. Uh, to such reachings uh, had Cormac grown uh, to such teachings as had Cormac grown up in a land where a man took every advantage, gave no quarter, and fought like a blood mad devil in the expe- in the expected if he expected to survive. So, and then the next line now a gesture from Saladin. Those crowding the door gave back right, and then he says, "The way is open, Lord Cormac." Right, and then they have this conversation back and forth, and it ends with. Um, I thank you, Lord Cormac, smiled Saladin. Your your road to the West is clear. And the West here can... Um, it's not capitalized, like the dark was capitalized. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can be a symbol for death as well. So it goes like this. Uh, and the Muslim warriors courteously salamed. And that's peace be upon you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as Cormac Fitzjoffrey strode from the royal presence of the slender noble who is protector of the caliphs, lion of Islam, sultan of sultans. And this is the name of the last chapter, right? Is, um, it's the line of Islam. So it ends with enter a man. And, and then we get this description of what, what's happening. Cormac strode from the Royal presence. Who's the narrator here? Who's the viewpoint character? It's Howard, right? of the slender noble who is protector of the caliph's line of Islam, Sultan of Sultans. That isn't like a guy introducing this guy to Cormac. That's the author talking. And it's he's third person omniscient. Yes. Yeah. And he's saying, this is who he is. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I wasn't, um, wasn't there a, a line early in the story where he's called the lion? Maybe I'm not, um, not, uh, Saladin, but rather, uh, uh, Cormac. Uh, I think there was some kind of comparison to a, a beast, big cat. but I yeah. don't. Yeah, big cat. I don't yeah. remember the the exact words. No. Yeah, I was struck by like that roar. though. And I guess the entire passage that you I, just read, and I was struck. But just one 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 thing. By the prose. One one sec, Trish. I just realized Howard's, it's right? Richard the Lionheart who's the other lion, right? Oh oh oh. Okay. And you think Sorry. about that, right? Richard Lionheart, who, who's, uh, kind of stupid and foolish. Mm. Um, and who is also great in battle, like our, our, our hero. And now in comparison, what happens to him, right? It's like, oh yeah, he sort of dies in ignoble mm-hmm. way and, you know, sort of wasting all these lives and, he, he taxed all the people, <laughs> went off on this crusade. And I, I, uh, before I forget this, I'm sorry, I wanted to say this earlier. Again, sorry, Trish. Um, the, that character of Saladin comes into us today through Robin Hood in a couple of interesting ways. You know, in the original Robin of Sherwood show, they added a Moorish character, right? Um, mm-hmm. who, who's come back from the crusades. And then when they did Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, they added yes. in a, uh, I, he might have been called a Moor as well, but they, you know, and they have this backstory with Robin uh, coming back from the Crusades. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's their way of saying, you know, look, we went off to this land and sort of cut everybody up and did crazy stuff, but maybe their religion ain't that bad. Maybe these people are actually honorable. 
bring him back and you know he's ill respected until you get to know him and it's kind of like um that that's what howard's doing here uh, he's not bringing him back obviously but he's introduced that's what i really appreciated about how reading howard in comics is you get to see characters interacting with other characters of other races every time conan goes somewhere it's a new country he's never been to be or we've never been to before um and he's interacting with those people it's never samaria it's never ever samaria because that's not the interesting part the interesting part is the interaction i uh, i sorry yeah, went long a now. lot of times the people that he that his characters interact with are not nice people <laughs> yeah well it has to be a villain somewhere in some way or mm-hmm. another you know they uh they cheat they lie they they uh um uh, or, or craven or, yep. or something but um but yes there is interaction and they're not just ignored and often he is the stranger dealing with their comp their country rather than uh just being a white conqueror who ignores the uh the races that he's conquering yeah it's it's so much like a conan story in that he comes from the north he's got this wanderlust but he's also got this sort of like a lack of um he's got a lack of the gigantic mirth you know he's only got the Mm -hmm. the melancholies he's only got the being towards death thing down he hasn't got the let's uh, have fun with this thing. It feels like he's more in search of a calling or a quest of some kind. Yeah. Whereas Conan's mm-hmm. clearly just in it for himself. It's like, I'm yeah. here. I'm doing it for me. Let's see what's going on. Let's, let's see what I'll I get going. King someday. That's right. We'll see. We see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> looking for someone to help or he's running. He swears loyalty to no one, but he's clearly looking for someone. Yes. He could swear loyalty to even if he never finds him. Well, that's the thing is, is, uh, if he cut this story off slightly, you can anticipate the ending that he'll switch teams, right? Which is something yeah. we can't imagine Howard writing, but we want him to go there. Is this the only time in Howard where the barbarian and the civilization come together and the barbarian worldview? Like, it feels really strongly like that. Like, you see, in I can't co- remember any other case. Yeah, I, I, in most cases, he sees and he describes the way the Europeans are. You know, when they ask him how how's uh, France and stuff, he, the way he describes it is corrupt, right? Mm-hmm. It's corrupt, right? Conan is always complaining about decadence, indeed, uh, uh, hyperboreans or whatever. Or it seems or- like like. Um, and and you think about how and it never occurred to me again until HP Podcraft talked about Queen of the Black Coast that uh, Belly um, her uh, she's supposed she's probably supposed to be Jewish and her great downfall is her greed because she wants that city right that's yeah, full of I I don't I hadn't made any connection I hadn't thought of Jewish. but the, well she's the son of Shem. She's the a son of Shem, which is a, you know, ah. but, but also the, the hawk nose Shem, right? So this idea, um, that she is from a, you know, the land of Judea or something, the version of that. And that the Shemite. she's highly admirable in many ways, but she's got this fatal flaw, right? And, 
And she's also a complete psychopath. She, well, absolutely. <laughs> well, there's that too. But but she also comes back from the dead. Was so passionate her love, right? Which is pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, she's she's a psycho killer. It's true. <laughs> um, but that that is neither here nor there. The important part is um, like the the idea of a corruption everywhere seems normal in Howard's world, whereas here it's like. Um, you get the sense that this person is not corrupt, right? That all his soldiers' swords are sheathed in respect for Saladin. This is probably like a romance of the Westerners towards this history. I have no idea really what, you know, the weed, getting into the weeds on Saladin is like. So I don't know if he, you know, he's corrupt and backstabbing anybody. But the propaganda is that he was, uh, exceptionally uh, good, right? Mm. Like almost like our team was the bad guys and this guy's really good. But Lionheart's really, yeah, he's a good guy too. And uh, it, it, it's very, it's very funny. T- I, I'd like to read more of these um, Howard inspired by uh, history stories. Cause I, I, I think his prose is amazing, right? But his themes are also really thoughtful. They're not as shallow as they appear to be just battle and battle and battle because he does something that that is total. Like I was thinking, Alex, you and I agree on this. Um, I was trying to, I was thinking about, is there any redeeming features of this latest run of Savage Sword and Conan the Barbarian? I'm like, no, there isn't because there's no depth there. There's no, like they had a line called Conan the Gambler. I'm like, oh, that sounds like it could be something. And it turned out to be like a marketing thing for a card game they're making. Like it, <laughs> it had no substance to it. Ugh. And I agree with you on the prose though, Jesse. I was thinking that with that passage that you read that, um, you know, it just carries you along and you hardly even notice. Oh yeah. The it philosophizing flows. that's going on, uh, because it's so well written. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons that Howard is so memorable and, you know, anyone trying to follow in his footsteps finds it hard not to just go into pastiche or something. He is so skilled at writing the prose that, um, that it just, uh, you know, it takes you there, and you you don't mind going through the thoughtful digressions that you get because you're being carried along on a wave of well written words. That's one reason it's so hard to adapt, Howard. Mm-hmm. So much of the value is in just the prose and the mm-hmm. description. It's not, the dialogue is not you know sparkling, no um, Oliver, you know, uh, wild kind of dialogue, but it's um, better than Lovecraft. <laughs> But when you make it into a comic book, like the uh, yeah. Home Studios comic, they used all the dialogue straight out of the yes. book, right? yes. out of the short story. It's it's just word for word text, and it's good. But a lot of the value is the descriptions of what's happening, mm-hmm. the way the words flow, and and you you know you read a good comic, and the art's really good. That's great, but. By showing in the picture, yeah. you lost that description. Well, that's what, right. that's You're why missing... I like that Roy Thomas, you know, era of Conan because you would have these giant text boxes that are just Howard's prose, slightly condensed, right? Mm-hmm. And then the the image would be would fill in the rest of the details, you know, like how ornate the cliff was or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but the here it's uh, there's virtually no 
text boxes at all. It's all dialogue. And so... Right. When you keep just the dialogue, you're losing all the sidelights that that Howard is throwing yep. on everything that's happening. And it's only 23 pages. That's the other thing, right? It, which is long for, you know... Uh, uh, well, it's not even long. It's about normal length for a Robert E. Howard story, right? But it feels like it's a lot more dense. It feels like a novel's length worth of material because of uh, there's like, isn't there like two major flashbacks to what's a lot happens? In this yeah, a flashbacks. He storms two <laughs> castles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he runs into a king. There's, there's a bunch of stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, I, I never, I never finish a Robert E. Howard and say, well, that was a waste of time. It's kind of like the opposite. I feel like, wow, that was like, it was like a really strong workout, you know? <laughs> mm. You feel like your muscles are, are a, a little stronger and, uh, you know, you feel more vigorous. A, a lot of the tension in this story, I felt like, uh, came from, uh, how it's writing. Like if, if, in the comic adaption, like you're saying, where it doesn't have the descriptions and his prose, just the dialogue. Um, I felt like this story, uh, when it ended, those last couple of lines, Trish, that you're talking about, that really carried you along, where he's talking about Sultan of Sultan, the line of Islam. Uh, it ends and you almost want to cheer. Like mm-hmm. it, it, the prose is so good um, that it's just like, yeah, salad and awesome. <laughs> um, but... Uh, if, if that was in a comic and it just ended with Cormac walking out without the prose, I feel like it wouldn't have the same amount of tension and excitement to it. Um, it is a lot in Robert's writing. I like that you're on a first name basis with him now. Yeah, I just, I do that. It's <laughs> <laughs> called Bob. Yeah. No, two gun Bob. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is, um, uh, there's a couple of paragraphs in here where, um, in the Mark Finn's afterward, uh, his own barbarism, it's called. Um, he, he starts with the quote, um, that it ends the thing. Um, and he says, that's what's missing from this adaptation. He does do a whole paragraph of praise on it, <laughs> but he, then he says, um, but that, 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 uh, I'll just read the opening of the, the essay. Uh, he saw suddenly embodied in the Sultan the ideas of chivalry and high honor so much talked of and so little practiced by the Frankish knights. But Cormac was born and bred in a savage land where men lived in de- uh, the desperate existence of the wolves whose hides covered their nakedness. He suddenly realized his own innate barbarism and was ashamed. And he literally says... I was when I was fourteen. I was twelve stone or whatever it is, and had killed three men running around wearing uh, wolf skin. Wolf skin, mm-hmm. right? He's literally a werewolf, right? Going around. <laughs> well, I mean that that uh, the interesting thing about werewolves is like there's like multiple ways of becoming one, and one of them is by acting the role of a wolf, right? Going around uh, attacking uh, people on the road, and like a lot of these things are uh, semi semi-mythological metaphors, right? If you think about, like, the Vol- the saga of the Volsungs, the dragon, Smaug, <laughs> from Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, The Hobbit is... it. The Hobbit is actually just ra- uh, uh, Tolkien rewriting uh, the saga of the Volsungs and a couple other myths for his own children. Mm. 
like just appreciating it and saying like they'll like this part of the story and he like literally rips off the names and the werewolf section of the saga the volsungs has them doing exactly that they betray each other right they they put on wolf skins and run around killing brother upon brother and then the this smog dragon sitting on a giant horde treasure horde is literally a you know uh, a viking lord who refuses to share in the the spoils of his adventures, right? And, uh, do you, I mean, uh, just on that note, in the Hobbit, um, after they do kill Smaug, then uh, uh, what's the guy's name? The other dwarf, Thorin. Thorin, yeah, he basically becomes the next dragon. Yep, <laughs> he kind of kills him and takes his place. So mm-hmm. it's definitely that character. This it's a representation of turning into uh, a dragon. And yeah, I agree with you. The same with um being a werewolf or with Cormac sort of being a wolf-like figure. Um, he has bloodlust. Uh, and also, and just the same as that Baron who wrote the poem that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. He was like, there's too much peace around here. Yeah. There is... Um, <laughs> wow, that's crazy, right? It's, it's so fucking bloodthirsty. It's like, yeah. um, let's get it on, let's get it on. I mean, the the... I'll read it again. It's just crazy. We shall see battle axes and swords, a battering, colored homes, H-A-U-M-E-S, I don't know what that is, and a hacking through shields at entering melee, and many vassals smiting to- smiting together whence there run free the horses of the dead and erect. And when each man of prowess shall become into the fray, he thinks no more merely of breaking heads and arms for a dead man is worth more than one taken alive. So this is actually talking about ransom. This is like what you do in battle to make money, right? Go into the battle, you capture a guy, take his shit and you say, make his family pay. Um, I tell you that I find no such savor in eating butter and sleeping as when I have, when I have heard cried on them, right? So a Lord can sit at home enjoying the fruits of his, you know, Castle and his, his laborers, the butter and the sleeping, as when I've heard on them and from both sides hear horses neighing through their headguards and their, hear the shouted to aid, to aid, and see the dead with lance truncheons and pennants still on them, piercing their sides, barons put in pawn castles and towns and cities before anyone makes war on us. So I think this is like the, we have to take the battle to them before they take the battle to us sort of logic. And then... Uh, pa- Papiol, be glad to go speedily to yea or nay, Richard Lionheart, and tell him there's too much peace about. That is like seriously a uh, propagandistic, like, let's do this fucking thing, sort of. It's a, it's, it's a hype up, sort of. <laughs> it is. It is. It's like one of those, um, pump you up, sort of beef, beef yeah. <laughs> you know, flex, um, flex, flex contests <laughs> right before the, uh, the wrestling match. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah, it's, or it's like the song, you know, that a boxer will come into. Right. To a boxing match to get everyone excited. This is kind of his own, his poetry is a bit like that. Yeah. Um, it's like, well, it, this, uh, Richard Lionheart's is too peaceable, right? It, like, get your act together, man. Let's get this war on. Mm. I don't, uh, tie, tie the fuck out of me. I, I gotta get this war on. Nothing makes me feel more like a man than my, hear the cry of battle and rush mm. to the aid of a friend. Right. And, and the, and the, that part about, um, you don't care if you kill them it, because it's better to kill them, even though it's worth more money to you. Fuck the money. 
The dead man is worth more than one taken alive. So why do you think he's saying that? Because because he wants to kill them or because... Because it feels um, so fucking good, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, I play PUBG, right? And the way I play is not the way Conan plays. That's the way most people play, right? They run into battle and try and get killed. I try and, like, live. (laughs) Just try and hide. (laughs) And, like, I I would say, you know, people talk about what they want added to the game. Somebody told me uh, they're going to add a helicopter. I want a shovel. (laughs) So I can like <laughs> dig a hole and hide in it. French warfare. <laughs> yeah. Literally, I do not want to. I I, I want to hide and not have them know where I'm because I know that's the best way to live. I'm just not that fast or strong, right? This is the the you know if you want to be pumped up, you have to go to the gym a lot, and it only works for so long. Eventually, you go into decline. So there's other ways to go. Is be you know become a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> like Evan, right? <laughs> Your wisdom stats increase at the age. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, you collect more and more books, and eventually, you know, you know it all, and you have a big, long beard. Um, and you can uh, you can become a lich, right? There's all sorts of ways of winning this, this manhood game. <laughs> mm. Connor's so lucky to be young and have the wisdom of me to tell him. <laughs> to oh, yeah, read these stories for me. <laughs> mm. I think it is. Um, uh, so I don't know too much. I, it would be great if, is it Mark Flynn is your friend? Who's an expert Mark Finn, on, yeah. on Howard. Um, it would be great to hear his um, take on uh, Howard's sort of, on what, on what he thinks about, how how it is exploring what it means to be a man in mm-hmm. this story and in so much of his stories because he's definitely very obsessed with it. Maybe obsessed is a too strong a word, but he's very interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the little that I know, I'm not, I don't know, haven't read too much about uh, Howard's life, but I think he had a difficult relationship with his father. Clearly, and yeah, and um, and his father was very distant, and um, uh, you know, from the little I know, so. For him, figuring out, okay, what does it mean to be a man? Uh, His dad is a doctor. He's not a doctor, right? He took bookkeeping at school, Mm -hmm. right? And that's because he needed to make some money, not because he wanted Mm -hmm. to be a bookkeeper. Yeah, and then, you know, and I mean, really, he wanted to be a writer, right? But he was just working odd jobs in between. Boxing, odd jobs, Um, bookkeeping, uh, and and trying to make a living as a writer and it uh, being a man like that very difficult right he he brags yeah. about i got 120 dollars for this story the one we're reading that was a lot of money um yeah back then mm-hmm. try and uh, do the conversion um that's that's like crazy amount of money today you, you can't be a writer and write a story this long and, and sell it and unless you're stephen king much. it's not it's just not happening right no um, my, my, there is a, like I say, a two page essay at the end of this, um, at the afterward, his own barbarism by Mark Finn. He has a book, which I have not read. I'm waiting for the audiobook, Mark, um, blood and thunder, the life and art of Robert E. Howard. It sounds amazing. Mm. Everything I've read about it makes it sound amazing. We need to get like Wayne June to narrate it or something. I think you did a really good job with this, Connor. Oh, thank you. I, I, yeah, it was, I'm uh, not just flattering. Like it, we, at some points, you you were like doing the voice of uh, Cormac, and I'm like, oh shit, he sounds scary. 
<laughs> got some sort of deep I, rumble going. Go full Irish accent. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> but um, uh, and um, there are a lot of different accents in this story. Mm. Right? There's German. There's French. There's Irish. There's uh, I suppose Kurdish, which would be. Um, uh, but um, yeah. Uh, so I wasn't brave enough to try all of those. But it's um, but it was a really fun story to narrate. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. I, I can feel that you know. I I, I yeah. can barely read a paragraph without fuck, fucking fumbling over it. So, it, I, I admire people who can do it, and you you're good at it. Thank you. Yeah, Robert. Um, I think his enthusiasm. Oh yeah. For the stories that he's making just comes through so strongly in his writing. Mm-hmm. Everything is um is turned up to ten all the time, uh, and it's even just reading the story. They're always so fun. You always Super know you're fun. in for a treat when you're reading. A Robert E. Howard story. Absolutely. I still haven't read everything he's written. I mean, he, he wrote a lot. Not, I think it'd be yeah. hard to have read everything. But even the, like the, I haven't read every uh, Conan story. There's a, still a few I haven't read. So I'm totally looking forward to the next one. I, I don't know what we should decide on what that one will be, but it's, mm, it's pretty cool. I'm keen to read, um, the next, cause, uh, cause there's two Cormac or there's two and a half. I think you mm. said before Cormac stories. Yeah. There's one unfinished one and another one that was released in the... This is from the spring edition of... Yeah, Autumn and I think it's this. Autumn of 32 or something. You yeah, know. and um, and so so there's one more. And I'd be interested to see what um, how it does with Cormac in the next sort of the story. The Blood of Belshazzar, it's called. Published in... Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, Fall of 31. Yeah, this was in the spring of 31. Yeah, I'd be really curious to see whether it's just more of the same... I mean, you can re- well, you couldn't really do more of the same because there's the twist at the end in this mm-hmm. one. But you could do more of the first half of of the of mm-hmm. the story. Looks um, like it has just, the cover. You know, going off on the further adventures, or will there be some other revelation? Oh no, it's not on the cover. I'm sorry. Uh, it says a, thr- a thrilling tale of Burma. <laughs> I saw the name Roger E. Howard Burma. on the cover. Yeah. Huh. Uh, this magazine, Oriental Stories, didn't last that long. Um, there, there was a follow-up, I think, called, I think Magic this is, Carpet. yeah, Magic Carpet, which is, um, totally, uh, the same idea, right? It's, it's looking east, right? The, the mysterious, uh, it's Orientalism is what they call it, right? The interest in the east. But, um, Connor, before, uh, we started, you were telling me about your big hippocampus press purchase. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you what, what you got? A uh, Clark Ashton Smith. What else did you get? Um, I got some uh, R. H. Barlow, one of his. Oh, books, cool. Um, who is uh, sort of a prodigy, uh, not a prodigy, but a protege of Lovecraft. Yeah, in a way. yeah. Um, and best friend. Uh, <laughs> I got a bunch of other weird fiction, like a W. H. Pugmire. Oh yeah, who I've never read, but I've been told is quite died good. recently. Yeah. Um, oh yes, he did a couple of, or he or she a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I also got some, uh, yeah, Clark Bastion Smith. Um, and also a book about the Tindalos cycle. So oh, that stuff. Pounds of Tindalos is really good. Have you read that? I have. Yep. Oh, it's um, spooky. I've read some great stuff by it. There's, uh, I read recently, um, a short story by, um, John Ivide Lindquist, who's a Swedish author who did a, a different take on the same concept hmm. of the Hounds of Tindalos. Cool. Um, so yeah, so that's what I, that's what I picked up from, 
The, the one I was thinking of with the Oriental tales or uh, Oriental stories um, is that is the novel, the fort, uh, novel Clark Ashton Smith wrote when he was 14 called The mm. Black Diamonds. Um, and my mom read that to me and uh, it was really fun. Like it was very badly plotted. <laughs> it was yeah. mostly like Dungeons and Dragons style adventures that didn't really logically follow but everybody's you know writing stern lectures to each other via and sending pigeons <laughs> that say i'm going to attack you in six hours uh first we will have a meal and the meal will consist of <laughs> and, you know like everybody's getting out their swords and then having wrestling matches it's like a boy's own adventure uh by a kid who doesn't know what he's doing but you can <laughs> tell he totally loved arabian nights and just mm-hmm. and just turned that into his own, you know. It's basically a Dungeons and Dragons adventure where he's the dungeon master and all the characters, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, just ridiculously fun. Like it didn't make a lot of sense, <laughs> but uh, there's an enthusiasm there that the, uh, the way I, I've been listening to Evan's podcast a lot, and he's been he, he pointed this out a few times about how um, Lovecraft seems to like be a fanboy of Clark Ashton Smith. Right? He's always trying mm. to push his his um his paintings on other people and he said, Oh my God, this guy's great. Everybody should be excited about him. And everybody's <laughs> like, Yeah, he's cool, but we really like you, HP. <laughs> and, and and so Clark Ashton Smith just doesn't have the you know, nobody's needs to cancel him because he's so not in the public mind. But his his stuff is really cool. He's mm. he's got a lot of like that prose that is a painting, you know the the lush color, um that you know the, the reds is what I always think if if you look at close your eyes and think of Robert E Howard story red shadows right oh yeah crimson scarlet citadels <laughs> there's a reds and blacks. And red nails. under moonlight, right? Yeah, oh yeah. And he 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 writes in in vivid color, and that is very unusual. Lovecraft, you know, it's very dry and dark. Um, maybe a little well, bit. It's cooler. not dry and dark. It's like it was a color, but I can't. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Just imagine the coolest color you've ever seen. That's what it looked like. Trust me. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I think we I wasted really a good... Like to, I would oh, really go like to it. look at some more of these oriental stories. Oh, yeah. This, I, I was looking at, at, at one of them in archives.com. Mm-hmm. One of the issues that they had there. Yeah, there's four issues know, up there. Most of them might be there. Um, no, just four. The art was not that impressive. You know, I, I was hoping for a little bit more exciting art. Being oriental stories, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, the covers are interesting, but the interior art wasn't that great and i think that's one reason people would go to this kind of magazine is kind of the this imagery of the east yeah um, uh, but uh, the stories uh, look really fascinating i think i i definitely want to check out more of those there's 33 the sequel to this one but there's 33 of them up many? on the pdf page right now um i think i prob- probably processed all four of the issues that are out the one that has uh, the other um, Cormac story is not has never been scanned yet so we are. I, I mean, it is available on Project Gutenberg and such, but um, I, I like to have it from the original if possible. Um, there, Sowers of uh, Thunder I, is on there. 
Um, that's from Winter of 32. And I've heard a lot about that. Have you read that, Alex? Sorry, which one? The Sowers of Thunder. No, I can't read It's a historical set in, I think it might be mentioned. Yeah. Um, it says, I think he, uh, Mark Finn mentions it, uh, in the essay. Uh, it takes place in Outremer, Crusader States, and the time of General Bybars, and his deals with the general's friendly adversarial relationship with Kalruda Odell, an Irish crusader with a troubled past. So the reason this is not in the same characters because it's a hundred years later, right? In the siege mm. of Jerusalem. Um, so, uh, I've heard, I, I, I know that there's a collection of Robert E. Howard stories called Sowers of Thunder. I might even have it. I've never read it, but, um, it's similarly, it's 28 pages. Maybe Connor's got another project. <laughs> mm. That one is on my list. Oh, good. Yeah. And the blood of uh, Bell. I've been thinking Bell. as uh, you guys have been talking about manhood. Mm-hmm. And so easy to compare Lovecraft and, and Howard's vision yeah. of manhood. But in a way, I think like Lovecraft is more correct about the status of, of masculinity in the 20th century, mm. in a way, right? And you know, it's it's that transition from like the mine or the factory to like the, the laboratory or something, yeah. right? And like Lovecraft sort of knows the future, like that it's going to be libraries and academics and you know bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of the future. Alchemists. <laughs> I mean, even like even if you look at like his, I was just thinking about his Roman dream, Lovecraft's Roman dream, mm-hmm. and there he goes back to more of a, like, well, that's kind of an exception, I guess, because there he's more of a warrior, right, in the mm-hmm. dream, in a country, in the, in, within a de- de- decaying empire or whatever. But this is all just, like, this is the fantasy of, like, working class who's... Absolutely. You know, lost mm-hmm. the, kind of lost this connection to traditional masculinity. And, you know, we read that Wastelands quite a long, mm-hmm. quite a long time ago. I don't think that this came up at all in that book no. but you know the impact of something like world war one on on something like masculinity I'm, you know people have written about this but, mm-hmm. you know it doesn't matter how much you train right it doesn't matter how no the machine gun goes right through well, your when you go into the steel muscles and you your thews are not <laughs> your thews will not help you yeah. so I think it would be interesting to examine a little bit uh, how much their concept of what it is to be a man and what it is to be masculine how much that's tied into just what it is to be an adult because mm. i don't think either mm. of them really thought of <laughs> women as people <laughs> uh not so much so the trophies know, for them, being a man was for being howard a plot objects yeah mm. i don't even think i don't think lovecraft really thinks of women at all like it just not that never really comes up where where howard it comes up and they are they are eyes for the muscles, right? It's the female gaze upon the muscles, just as much mm-hmm. as the male gaze is upon the muscles. Um, so the women can be admirable because they are, they are sure of themselves. They're adults of their own, perhaps, rather than like, cause he does do that. He has female protagonists or female, uh, characters who are how it is, um, characters who are like wimps and afraid of everything 
Kind of like uh, I, I heard a podcast about the Indiana Jones second movie, and who's the uh, um, Willie? Willie Scott, right? Willie Scott is just what her job in the movie is to scream every time something yeah. happens, right? And it turns yeah, into a the, joke. It does have a few uh, admirable women, but even even in that, you know, there's the queen in. Um, the people of the Black Circle, mm. who is dedicated to her duty. I was thinking about um, that one. There's a slave girl who's brave enough to, you know, help Conan escape or mm-hmm. something, um, and is rewarded by being made his empress, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the, uh, uh, Zed starts Zenobia. Um, so there are a few, but, you know, they are very much secondary characters. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, so Red Sonia of Rogatane is is uh, actually a historical character, right? Or sister yeah, of a she, historical character. She fought uh, a later Burger Sultan. Who was the one? Yeah, she fought at the Siege of Vienna. But um, that actually, uh, you know, that's why I think um, Valeria, um, not the necessarily the Valeria from the Barbarian movie, although she's very similar. Um, the pirate from Red Nails. Red from Red Nails is mm-hmm. the most. But she's also the most manlike in the sense that she is a pirate and not a pirate queen sending people to their destruction. She's like a, uh, she's a, a f- grunt level pirate mm-hmm. or a mid, mid level pirate, right? She can fight with the best of them. So that's why she's an admirable character is because she's an adult. She's a companion, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to, um, uh, something needed to be saved. Yeah, she's not a plot object. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, I, I think that there's... Well, we, I mean, in the story, I, she does end up being someone who needs to be saved, even though she starts out strong at the beginning. That's just a yeah, pop-up. It's been a while since I read it. Make him even more of an outsized hero. Hmm. We, we got we got Paul in, finally. I I, I, know, I think I Paul. heard your voice and I didn't notice it before. But yeah, you're you weren't here at the beginning. When did you get in with us? Um, about five minutes ago. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't like half hour. Um, um, so, speaking of women as plot objects uh-huh. and manhood, you'll notice in this um, story, Hawks of Outremere, um, the woman is a plot object. It's the exact same plot from Iron Shadows in the Moon. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We just did Iron Shadows in the Moon. I, I didn't notice that. Yeah, they're like, hey, let's get the slave girl to bat her eyes at the guy, and then he'll come try and rescue her, and we'll capture him. Wow. And in this case... The Lord uh, didn't do that because he was um, not uh, not Conan. He was like, yeah, I'm not going to go after the slave girl. But his <laughs> stupid squire did. Right. And they ended up getting in trouble anyway. and ended up getting killed. But. Yeah, that super stupid squire character is around a lot in a lot of Conan stories now that I think about it. You, gotta have a fool. you have to have a fool. I mean, I mean, even in the movies, you have, uh, at least in the second Conan movie, Movie, I believe you have the you have the full you have oh, the man, full that movie sucks. Thief, I know, I know it's not good. Painful but, character. But, you know, but, I, I I really like Zula because she's from the comics, right? Except she was a dude, and I, I really liked. Um, uh, there was a Chris scene. Jones just Grace Jones makes that character come alive. Oh yeah. Woman, so, oh yeah. yeah, she's great. Great character. I'm, I'm fine with every other movie. character in that movie. But. And there's a scene near the beginning where they just do a little horse battle. And that scene, like, if you just cut off the rest of the movie, it's actually really good. It's a really good scene. <laughs> but the movie's so garbage. And I think it is because of the, the princess. She's fucking annoying. Right? She was, like, 
15 or 16 when she made that movie. Really? Okay. Yeah, she was like way underage. I didn't. I didn't even stories about making that movie. Wow. (laughs) That might explain a lot. But the dynamic there with Zula is a sexual tension. Which is interesting because there wasn't any sexual tension with the regular Zula and, and he's not a real, um, you know, Robert E. Howard creation, but he is sort of an amalgam of, of the, I, I think of the Solomon Kane, uh, wizard character, um, Nolonga. Am I getting that name right? Yes. Yeah. With the cat heads. Yeah. He's a wizard, right? And so is, uh, Zula. He's a medicine man. Yeah, and Zula is too, and not in the movie, but in the uh, he he's uh, ma- he's got magic, right? And there's something there's something cool about that because Conan is not cool with magic, well, um, right? So so Gosi comes out is like, I need you, and he just says, I'm yours, right? Right. Like, like no question. I mean, I mean, there's some back oh, the whole backstory that we don't need. It's like yeah. Corny knows this guy, and yeah, he's going to go help him. So it, it, it's kind of like the the taunt. If Will were here, and he could do that, he could do this job a lot better for me. But the Tonto character to uh, the the Lone, Lone, Lone Ranger. Ranger. I, I I never was a big Lone Ranger fan, but I, I really found their dynamic fun. They're two different watch people. The show. Yeah, watch the old Black I did show. watch They're it. Fantastic. I did watch it. I just don't remember. Uh, I don't remember liking the Lone Ranger himself. I just remember liking the show. You know, the Lone Ranger is very fifties square. Yeah, that's got to be but what Jay it is. Silverheels played an amazing Tonto. Yeah, yeah. I remember their relationship. Like when they're in banter, it's really good. And then, like, there's some plots and stuff that's less good, like Rancher's Daughter or whatever. <laughs> Needs rescuing. Uh, but the, the, the thing is, is that is very much like a, it's, it's like a Robert E. Howard dynamic, right? He did write westerns, although he didn't write very many. But that kind of range romance, um, on the edge of civilization. Why is this lawman wearing a mask? Um, he's, he's really good at, it makes me think, Evan, have you read, um, Beyond the Black River? That's the Howard story with Conan. Uh, it's, 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 some people think of it as the best one. I don't know. I if, like that one a lot. Yeah. It's pretty good. Very it is good. Very good. Mm-hmm. But it is very Western too, right? Oh, it's, it's very much Conan yes. fighting Indians on the frontier. Right. Exactly. And mm-hmm. sort of sympathizing with their point of view while he kills them mm. and tries to save the settlers, right? It's, it's, which, which makes me think of John Carter and his own uh, his own sympathies mm-hmm. for for the Indians on the frontier, even though he's in conflict with them, and then of course winding up on Mars and finding sympathies with Mark with first versus first the Tarks, so who are really Indians in, with the forearms and green mm. compared to the civilized cities of Helium, who clearly consider them to be united. Yeah, they're, they're, they're uncivilized and unclean. Mm. There's a barbarian civilization thing there happening too, mm-hmm. but but uh, Carter's uh, Carter's less uh, less the barbarian than he is. I don't know. But, middle start, man. but, but, but he he get, I mean, eventually is becomes the the Jaddak of helium. But he starts off with the barbarians and you mm-hmm. know. So, so so it's definitely it's definitely it's definitely the same dynamic there. I uh, did you Paul? Did you miss and did you miss it not having any magical element because. The the way they talk about Robert E. Howard, they always think of him as sword and sorcery, and I, I, that's how I, I, I always thought of him. The whole historical fantasy of this is like, and, and we and we and we get to see Saladin, which 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 always always pleases me, and we 
get to see get to see uh he's not the he's not the uh er, the evil arab so to speak he's yes he's he's schemed and plotted to have two guys kill each kill each other and our hero comes out on top but saladin's honorable which you know i mean for the, but you for didn't the, like come away thinking oh you know what this story needed was an evil wizard <laughs> no, no, no. I, it very much States, I, I mean, if an if an if a magical assassin showed up, I wouldn't have bat an eye. But no, I mean, we 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 had the we got the crusade story. Yeah, there are assassins. Actually, the Hashashin are actually in right. this but, this but, era, so that would have been kind of cool. Magic that would have been okay. but yeah. it didn't really need this. I took this as okay. This is going to be historical fantasy. We're going to get to meet. A real historical But it's not really fantasy. That's the thing. Is is it is it's his, oh, it's oh, okay. historical okay. fiction. Right. Um, but 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 it's events. I mean, I mean, the line between historical fiction and historical fantasy is kind of blurry. And this, no, I don't think it's. Of, I don't think this is like there. There really are no fantasy elements other than there's a guy who's really strong. <laughs> other than his crushing, being able to crush people's hands open. Inventing this guy out of whole cloth and this whole backstory is. It's not. I mean, well, yeah, but like Sharp's Sharp's rifles is not a ba- uh, it's not based on a real guy, but that's historical fiction, right? Because th- those no, u- units did historical fiction, yeah, right. It, 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 it and it's not fantasy just because it has you know this has swords, right? It, I I would say that I I I, I took a super strength as the one. Yeah, <laughs> it's close. It is, it is, that, you know. That axe throw was borderline. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also javelins a dude pretty good with it. You can call it historical fiction if you like and just go with it. It's good historical fiction. I mean, I mean, you've, you've read, uh, Harold Lamb. I know just well, maybe some of the others have as well. Well, that, I think Harold Lamb was like, was, was that, Alex, you might know, was that Howard's number one guy he was always talking about? I think it was. Um, How he modeled himself on, really? Yeah, I mean, because I mean, he because Lamb wrote historical fiction yeah. and also histories. So I mean, he wrote a bio Genghis Khan. We had also all the stories. Yeah, of people on the, I'm pretty sure know, it was Harold Lamb because he was he was reading adventure, and Harold Lamb was all up in there. And and Harold Lamb is like completely forgotten. And Howard's, how I mean, maybe not completely forgotten, but virtually. Uh, I, I know one. Harold Lamb fan and all science fiction fandom besides myself. Right. So maybe he's forgotten. Yeah, as much, you know, I know about him because Robert E. Howard was talking about him. Right. Right. But it, it's funny because this, this, what I thought I liked about Robert E. Howard is, is, um, his, this stuff they called sword and sorcery, but I don't think that's it. What I like is Robert E. Howard's writing. You know, and it doesn't really matter what he applies it to. Yeah, the, this the, is, lack of, the lack of the sorcery in this, yeah, does not detract. Yeah, it does not detract from the story. It's still a good how Robert E. Howard's story is. I actually kind of like it better than because whenever we get into that, you know, the magic stuff, the way Conan treats it, he doesn't seem to be interested in it, and neither am I. <laughs> no, no, I, I mean that. That's that's the whole point of sword and sorcery. Sorcery is supposed to be mysterious and strange, and you're not supposed to understand. It. It's not D and D fancy and magic. Mm. Like, oh, that's a level three spell. Like, no, sorcery <laughs> is just weird and strange, and you don't know what to do with it. Better of just to cut the head off the wizard and be done with it. People really like uh, Tower of the Elephant, right? I, mm-hmm. I think that that's cool. Uh, but the parts I like about it are not the wizard and the tower, but rather the elephant being an alien, 
And then also the gardens, right, being guarded by lions that he deals with and this other thief who's going in. Silent lions. Right, right. Their their throats are, you know, I'm pretty sure, um, I'm I'm pretty sure that's lifted from somewhere. I can't remember where it is, but Howard is really good at lifting. Like he finds something really cool, and then he steals he, from the best. He does steal from the, but he steals the right but things then he makes too. This his own, absolutely. And yeah, and so like his own coloring. You know flavoring. that story, um, to me is is like one of the weakest. But a lot of people really like it. I think they like it because of the the magic. But I could be maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're wrong. Like oh, I, I like the, him um, for it. I, I love the puzzle solving. You know, how's he going to get up the the tower? Yeah. And then, and I also I like the pathos of the elephant. Um, just the whole. Uh, yeah, he's that's, tortured. That's the this kind is... of thing that I don't expect to see <laughs> in a lot of and sword and sword. In fact, it's especially just... Robert E. Howard. Yeah, it's like yeah, he's it, a very strange element and. I mean, I, I can't think of any other story by Howard that's, that has something like the elephant in what it. What about, wasn't, there's a, he did a sword and fantasy, sword and planet story, long novel. It's got one word title. Al Murek. Al Murek, right? Is, that's kind of, okay. it's kind of more Clark Ashton Smithy, right? <laughs> I, I haven't read it. I haven't read that one, so yeah, I can't comment on that. I've, I, I know there's a comic of it. I wasn't sure it was. Yeah, I think it was fake finished by somebody else, and they didn't say that. By somebody else. Okay. Yeah, I think they. He wrote a lot of unfinished things. Yeah, if you have like I have a bunch mm-hmm. of his collections. I have like a whole shelf of Howard books, mm-hmm. and a third of each one of those books is. And here's some fragments that fit in this. Theme, right. But it's just... I feel like though, like I remember Evan just had a podcast uh, where he was reading from Lovecraft, and he had a description of a real town. And it sounded like, uh, maybe it was New York. Evan, you remember this? I, I don't know when you recorded it, but it, Either New York or yeah, is New England. And he's just describing like how the houses loom. And I was thinking, you know, if you clip this out and strung it together with a whole bunch of other like clipped out stuff from his, his letters, people would probably think that it was written by him as a story just because those sentences are, even though he's describing, you know, places that he's visiting it's still him talking about it and mm-hmm. i feel like that's the same thing with howard he's got a um these writers the storytelling yeah the natural storytelling thing is they don't turn it off right mm. it isn't like composed like using a jigsaw puzzle and and a and a <laughs> A protractor. <laughs> it's it's like raw coming out, and then you know this thing happened, and and this is how the soul be. of the poet. Indeed, indeed. Well, I really like this. I'm. I hope uh, we can do it again. Connor's going to do us another one. I'm sure. I'm committed now. All right. <laughs> my, <laughs> see, I told you my tricks, my spell casting works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I committed you to it. Doing another one, we'll we'll figure out which one it'll be. I'm gonna press it isn't stop. Much convincing? <laughs> no, uh, well, I I think the convincing was just giving you the Howard, right? If I gave yeah. you some piece of junk <laughs> and say, "Hey, record this," <laughs> maybe it wouldn't work so well. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. 
please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.